Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 19th episode of the Nauticast entitled Lord Snow, an analysis of a Game of Thrones John 3, in which our hero checks his privilege and we are introduced at last to the wall. This episode is brought to you, as always, by our three Lords Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., and Hayden J. Thank you, gentlemen, very, very much. Thank you, as always. And, as we say in all podcasts, our spoiler warnings, we'll be talking about all the published books. That is the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, and the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. So, uh, normally at this point in time, we will have questions from some of our fantastic and awesome patrons. And we do have one question for this week. But before we wanted to address that question, we wanted to talk a little bit about some news that developed in the week prior to us recording. And that is that HBO announced that they would bring one of the pilots for the successor shows to air, the one by Jane Goldman. And interestingly, and um, kind of shockingly, in my opinion, the the place they chose to feature the show is the Age of Heroes. Uh, that is the time 10,000-ish years before the events from A Song of Ice and Fire. And yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know, I, I it came as a, as I said, as I said before, it's, it was very unexpected. It was a bit of a surprise that they selected this show. Uh, what, what do you think, Emmett? Is this going to be like something that we're going to enjoy? Is this going to be of the same caliber of Game of Thrones? Are you excited? I mean, give me your give me your thoughts about the show. I agree that it's surprising. This is not the direction I would have thought HBO was going to go in. I expected something more in the vein of Robert's Rebellion, The Dance of the Dragons, something with, you know, fantasy elements, but something more political and war-inclined, something with a lot of battles yeah. and, you know, bodice-heaving drama and sexy actors giving speeches and... I thought that's where we're, and I'm sure those elements will still be part of this show, of course, since that's part of the brand. But the subject material is much more mystical, weird, and historical than I had anticipated. It's as if yeah. they followed up the Lord of the Rings with not the Hobbit, but parts of the Silmarillion, or a focus on the the battle between the last alliance of elves and men against Sauron that you see in the beginning of the first movie. It's an interesting, yeah. it's an interesting choice for a prequel and an expansion of the series. I'm cautiously optimistic about it i like uh the creative team we've seen so far behind it Uh, i'm interested in the revelations and plot direction they'll go in and i'm always up for seeing you know weird fantasy magic capture with a lot of money on screen that's always been one of the uh saving graces of game of thrones for me is just the just the witness that kind of spectacle and bizarreness Mm -hmm. uh with a lot of resources behind it so i'm looking forward to on that level uh, its relationship to the mythology of the series as a whole and to Game of Thrones, I'm worried we might end up with a, you know kind of a lost situation where we're all just kind of following a bunch of threads that don't pay off or aren't meant to pay off or they're not sure where they're going with it. Uh, I'm worried it'll be a mess on that level. But I am I am looking forward yeah. to the, the novelty and experience of watching it. And I think that's going to be true regardless of the quality of the show itself, to be perfectly honest. I agree that it is that it is going to be a novel concept. And it did catch me as a surprise, I think, in part because I had figured that Fire and Blood Volume 1 was being published earlier than anticipated because it was going to feature events that would come in one of these successor shows. And then I talked about this a little bit in um, the Maester Monthly Colin Tankard episode is that even though they've optioned this one pilot, 
there is still the possibility, if not probability, I would say, that we will see a number of these other potential pilots come to air. So you can see an Aegon's Conquest show, a Dance of the Dragons, a Nymeria's 10,000 ships, uh, something along those lines eventually coming out sometime down the road, perhaps even concurrently with this pilot. Probably not. The pilots won't be aired at the same time, but you can have one Game of Thrones successor show on while another pilot airs and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree that I was thinking it would be more Targaryen-oriented. I, I, I mean, the show is known for being the tits and dragons show, as Ian McShane once said about season six of Game of Thrones. And... You know, the interesting thing about the Age of Heroes is that dragons aren't really much of a feature at, at all. I mean, there's, I mean, if you read The World of Ice and Fire, you have the maesters talking about evidence that there probably were dragons on Westeros before the dragons were in in Valyria and became more prominent, more prominently used by the Valyrians in their various wars and their expansions out onto the associate continent. But yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what they do with it. I think it's I think it's kind of a bold choice though in that or bold choice cotton. It's a bold choice because uh, I was expecting again like something more Game of Thrones oriented, more of the politics, the intrigue, the the character oriented drama. I'm not saying they still can't do a number of those things, but the Age of Heroes is very fantasy oriented. It is not grounded in this idea that. Of, of the politics of the realm, the wars of the realm. And you do have some of that stuff in The Long Night and things like that. But it's a very fantasy-oriented concept. And I think that's an interesting decision that they opted for as in lieu of the Targaryen, potential Targaryen or Nymeria's decision, or Nymeria's uh, show that they might have done. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious about what exactly it's going to feature. And they, we know it's going, going to be the Age of Heroes timeline. Is it going to feature stuff like The Long Night? Are we going to have characters like Brandon the Builder, Land the Clever, Garth Greenhands? The, these are things I'm interested in seeing if they're actually going to bring to the fore. I, I'm, I don't know in my mind, like, would Garth <laughs> Greenhands work as like a character on an HBO show? I mean, I was just thinking that because that's like, again, to go to Lord of the Rings, that's the Tom Bombadil situation where right. it's difficult to bring that to live action in a dramatic sense without seeming silly. It works wonderfully on the page. It's a great legend. It ties deeply into real world myths and legends, of course. But as a dramatic character, yeah, it seems weird that this wouldn't... I mean, again, who knows what they'll do with it. They can introduce whatever elements they want. It doesn't seem like, though, it's going to be an actor's showcase, at least on first blush. Like, that's not what those stories are. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to I'm curious as to what the hook is. I'm curious as to what the general audience hook is going to be for this because, well, you're absolutely right. They can keep approving pilots. They can keep starting production. They can make as many shows as they want. It's the age of the multiverse and the cinematic universe, of course. Sure. But a lot of the success of those projects, especially with the long lead up time they're all going to need, is the success of this. It's it's the first yeah. one of the non Game of Thrones projects. If it does. You know, even if it does good but less than projected, that's going to be a worrying sign. If it doesn't do well, that's going to put a lot of other projects in jeopardy. So it, it is an it is an interesting move to have this as the first off the slate. So I'm I'm going to be watching for details closely as we go with this one for sure. It might be as I think about it, it might be similar to the MCU expanded universe that's on Netflix, where you have Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage that other worthless dude and the defenders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Um, just kind of like the alternating different. So you have one season that's going to be the age of heroes, another season that'll be Aegon's conquest. I mean, you could do it kind of patchwork like that and that might work because you can develop strong storylines that way, as opposed to be constrained to this year by year by year calendar, which forces the writers to have 
to make decisions to kind of shortcut certain plot lines and certain character arcs, which is a, a common and, in my opinion, somewhat valid criticism of some of the later Game of Thrones seasons is that they've shortcut a lot of the character work that they were building on in the earlier seasons in, in favor of kind of getting towards the end and because they just simply didn't have enough time to write as compelling of arcs as they did in, in prior seasons. But I, I, I'm curious. Yeah, I am very curious why they made the selection. Like, what was the hook? And, you know, Jane Goldman, as you guys have probably heard in, in other podcasts and, and just know from her work in general, uh, she's done a lot of origin stories, things like the, uh, the revamped X-Men series that was helmed by Matthew Vaughn as the director, Kick-Ass, which kind of filtered, kind of, you know, didn't actually pan out all that well, unfortunately. Uh, Evan and I were talking about it would be great if, you know, you had Jane Goldman as the writer of the first episode, the pilot episode, but you had Matthew Vaughn as the director. I think that would be a great... Uh, way to do it, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Agreed, that would be the dream scenario. But yeah, I am curious as to how it handles the mythology, uh, and we'll see what, of course, people inclined in that direction, like our, our guest from a couple weeks ago, uh, LML, thinks about that. And speaking of which, uh, he is doing a live stream with uh, Aziz Anashaya from History of Westeros and uh, Joe the Magician, our friend Matt. They're doing this at a, on Thursday. It's upcoming Thursday, June 14th at 5 p.m. Eastern. Uh, So uh, watch for that. Uh, They're, you know, again, that's uh, kind of the best of the community in both like magical and historical matters coming together. So that's perfect. Uh, All four of them are super smart. If you haven't checked out their work before uh, on their various podcasts and uh, essays, in Matt's case, you definitely should. And uh, check them out on Thursday at 5 p.m. Absolutely. So keep your ear to the ground. We'll see what happens. Uh, George did comment briefly on it and saying that it's not impacting his work on the Winds of Winter. That is his top priority, and he's very busy with it. Stop bothering him. So um, I'll take that as a good sign uh, from my perspective. My little foxhole over here waiting for winds. We'll, we'll see what happens with that. True. I take it as George R. R. Martin doesn't much care for us, and I can't blame him particularly at this point. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, we've got to be kind of assholes to our, our favorite author, unfortunately. I did see uh, George Lucas saying that, uh, you know, when someone was asked if he ever wanted to make more Star Wars movies recently, he said, why would I when all it leads to is everyone being angry at you and telling you that you're a bad person? <laughs> uh, which, you know, to whatever, whatever extent you think that's valid for George Lucas, I I sometimes feel that way for for George R. R. Martin in regards to the reaction to the previous two books uh, and combining with the longing for wins. It's just that combination of the last book sucked. Also, when's the next one, asshole? Like that yeah. the combination of those two arguments really annoys me. Oh, because yeah. like you don't yeah. even like the thing you're asking for. Then why are you being you know so aggressive about it? So, right. Right. That would make me cynical as an author as well. I can't blame him. For yeah. Being, I can't blame him for being kind of curt. On, on the wins updates at that point. I wish I got I wish we got more substantive updates, but the the tone of what he tells us I can't blame him for at this point. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, what what can he do? I mean, at this point we're all in for the the long haul, and I think George knows himself that he. I, I think he's. I believe him that he's working hard on it, but I can see him feeling very pessimistic about the fan base and fandom and and things. All things fan, especially since the show blew up and the books blew up as a result of the show. I mean, they were they were popular before the show for sure. Sure. But I think they had sold like four million copies before Game of Thrones aired, and now they've sold like sixty or seventy million copies. So the the fandom has expanded, and the fandom is used to this kind of. Well, I don't. I don't that sounds patronizing, but it, the fandom is used to year by year you get a new a new season of Game of Thrones. Why is why are the books taking so long? Well, the the process of writing a Song of Ice and Fire is a bit more a lot more complex at least 
for George than uh, than it is to create the show. But we will uh, we will see and we'll keep our ear to the ground for any wins and winter news and updates as well. We will report them. You'll hear them here first, or at least on Monday, whenever whenever the next. At the least George on Monday. On, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it'll be old. Uh, if you still. haven't checked it out, if you're one of our Patreon subscribers at five dollars or above, you have access to our episode on why the Winds of Winter is taking so goddamn long. So if you haven't checked that out, <laughs> please feel free to do so. Moving on to our uh, question for the episode, we have one from Sir Thomas H, one of our sworn swords, and he asks, "Quote: I just wanted to start by saying I love your podcast and to keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Aww. sir." I actually had a question as a new Sworn Sword patron. I was actually dis- discussing A Song of Ice and Fire with my friends, and we had an interesting idea that Stannis may burn more than just his daughter. That if he got a hold of Rickon, which seems likely, and that he already holds both Asha and Theon, that he may sacrifice three people with King's Blood to stop the others. I like this idea as it put John against Stannis and may even be a spark for a second Battle of Winterfell. I was just wondering if you guys thought this idea holds any validity to it, or if you guys think it's totally bogus. Which of these sides do you come on down there, Jeff? Valid or totally bogus? I don't think it's invalid necessarily. I think it's an interesting idea. But like we said in a previous episode, one of the things that will that we believe is going to make the Shireen sacrifice so not satisfying. Satisfying is not the right word. So emotionally poignant is so the fact impactful. That, yeah, 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 yeah. Is the fact that it will be the sacrifice that Stannis will will make and will be the one that will hold. A lot of value to him. Now, a, a sacrifice of Asha, Theon, and Rickon will be uh, horrifying for us as readers because, by and large, we love Asha and, and we sort of like Theon. At times, we, we pity Theon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we then, don't want him to know, Rick, die. Yeah. Right. And Rickon's just a kid, and that's going to be horrifying. But the thing is, is that as a writer and as an author, George is likely looking at the impact it's going to have on its characters, and that's going to have a much larger, more poignant impact on on the reader because Stannis sacrificing Shireen is so much tied into who Stannis is and is so much of that idea if I might if I must sacrifice one to save the world from the dark then I was you know sacrifice is never easy Davos great or small we must do our duty sort of thing that's Stannis in a nutshell so him sacrificing Shireen and sacrificing Shireen alone is likely going to be the only sacrifice, in my opinion, because it will have the most impact. If Stannis is burning Asha, Theon, and then Rickon, and then we get to Shireen, it's kind of like, okay, well, Stannis is obviously going to burn this kid now. Like, that twist doesn't have the impact that it has because he's been burning people all along. Now, you can make a an argument that Stannis oversees the burning of folks like the Peasbury men from A Dance with Dragons, from Asha's The Sacrifice chapter, but they weren't sacrificed to R'hllor. They were burned because they were committing cannibalism, and that is both morally, well, you could say it's morally horrifying, you can understand it, given that everyone's starving in Stannis' camp, but it wasn't done as a sacrifice to R'hllor, no matter what some of the more fervent R'hllor believers in Stannis' camp believe. It was done because they had done, they had committed a crime in, in Stannis' eyes. And you can understand why Stannis might want to punish people who are eating each other because you want to kind of dissuade people from eating each other. So, but I, I don't think that argument holds water as as a as a foundation for Stannis burning three 
other characters before he gets to, to Shireen. Uh, I think it, it works more to set the foundation that Stannis is willing to burn people and that Shireen will all be the ultimate person that he burns and will be the one that will have the most impact on the character of Stannis and on the uh, on the reader as well. I couldn't agree more. It's overkill. Uh, there needs to be a focus on that kind of intimacy and horror of the moment. I think it. I think that would kind of confuse scale for impact. Yeah, uh, it doesn't. It's not about the amount of people that Stannis is sacrificing. It's about who and why. Yes. And Shireen fits that specifically. She fits the Nissa Nissa model that's outlined in Davos's first chapter in the Clash of mm-hmm. Kings. It fits uh, Stannis's kinslaying and willingness to kinslay in the regards of Renly and Edric Storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were both cases focused intimately on one person. It wasn't about Stannis destroying Renly's entire army. It, want, it wasn't about Stannis sacrificing Edric Storm and also Patchface. Like yes. those were the the power, the the dramatic power from those decisions and the debates around them were because they were focused on one person. You could focus on that one person and Stannis's relationship to them, what he thought about them. You know, Stannis. You, you contrast Stannis's certainty that he did ultimately the right thing with Renly because Renly was a traitor, and the men who followed him did so for no other reason than ambition. He contrasts yeah. that with his his real agony in a storm of swords because he knows sacrificing Edric Storm is indefensible, and that the kid is completely innocent, and that you know, yeah, he didn't. Even if Robert cursed Stannis's marriage bed, that's not Edric's fault. So you, no. You know that so you you know that's where you, that's where you get something out of Stannis, and that's where you really get into the kind of the depth of his character, um, and I think that's going to be the focus too with Shireen is 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 the the utter horror of the decision contrasted with the stakes if he doesn't. Uh, we'll get into it when we get to a later John chapter in this book, but you know Maester Aemon's monologue where he describes the that you we would have to be one man in ten thousand to do the right thing even at cost to the people you love. And yeah. John is claiming that that's Ned, but of course we know that's not the case about Ned. Yeah. And in fact, the the, the person who describes best is Stannis, uh, and mm-hmm. that he he would cross that line. You need, I think, you need that focus with Shireen because uh, that's what makes it clear how far he's willing to go because it's his daughter and she's such a innocent and framed as such an innocent. Whereas Theon and Asher are both adults who've done horrible things. And I'm not saying they deserve right. to be burned at all, but it's not no. the same. It's not the same contrast. It's not the same horror. It's just not the same drama. It's, you know, it's it's just, it's not there. And I also agree about Stannis', Stannis sacrifices. He's, he, he's consistently towing the line of whether he's really willing to make a deal with R'hllor directly. He doesn't really want to do that. He wants to tell himself yeah. it's just making use of Melisandre or he's just burning Alistair Florent for a traitor, or at the cannibals, yeah, it's, it's for that crime. He, when, when he's directly told, you need to make a deal with the god, he does not like it. Like when he says on the, in the northern campaign, I will have half my army's name of unbelievers, I will have no burnings, pray harder. That's, that, that's his response, which is just great. But, yeah, he's, he's rightfully spooked by that concept of going so far as to make a direct deal with the devil. So I think, yeah, I think there's a build-up to that being a singular decision, a singularly piercing decision, and being focused on one character uh, so we can re- really feel it. So I, I agree with you completely. I think it's just going to be Stannis and Shireen. Asha and Theon, I think their fates are, are toward, more towards the Iron Islands. Rickon, you know, might... might live to run free with the wildlings or die some gruesome death another way, but I don't think it's going to be related to Stannis. Yeah. I, as per the norm, we were agreeing. Um, we, we, we just kind of stopped doing that, man. 
That's, clearly, that's, clearly, the, the people the people want us to fight, and the people want us to war at, war at each other. But we we just we just can't because we hold the correct opinions, and by and large, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's just hard to disagree with you. When the cold winds rise, we shall live or die together, being right. That's right, absolutely, absolutely. It's the part that um, left out. Indeed. So, Sir Thomas H., uh, we appreciate the question, and you know, keep them coming. Again, we will. Um, we didn't throw up a post this week because we had the the news about the Game of Thrones TV show, and we had the other question from Sir Thomas H. that we were really interested in, in answering. But we'll have a post next week for our episode on Tyrion three. And uh, if you want to learn more about our takes on what Stannis's end game is going to be, our next Patreon special episode is called. A Burning Crown, the endgame of Stannis Baratheon, and it is going to be coming your way on June 28th. So June 28th, we'll be talking about Stannis, what we think George has planned for his endgame, and it'll be available for all of our $5 and above patrons. So for just kind of give you guys a little bit of a schedule idea, the 28th, it'll be available for our $5 patrons, $5 and $10 patrons. On the days preceding, you'll have, it'll be available to our Lord's Commander and our Kingsguard patrons. So if you're interested in signing up, our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-F. And we will look forward to recording that episode and getting out to you guys here in just about two weeks. Yes, indeed, sir. That's going to be a fun one. I'm looking forward to it. It will. It will indeed. So we appreciate the questions and we're looking forward to Game of Thrones, the successor show. The first one is going to be coming our way and we will be enjoying that and enjoying Game of Thrones, the TV show and you guys for years and years to come. But the focus of this podcast is not on those things. The focus of this episode is on a really cool chapter. It is a Game of Thrones, John 3. And here's its synopsis. Private Jon Snow beats the shit out of Private Gren in the Castle Black Courtyard. Only when Private Jon hits Private Gren's wrist with his blunted sword does Grizzled Drill Sergeant Thorne, uh, Sir Alistair Thorne, call the skirmish to a halt. Gren complains that Jon broke his wrist, but Alistair retorts that no, Jon opened Gren's skull and cut off his wrist or would have had the boys been using live steel. But Jon is tired. He leans against his sword and Alistair tells him that it's a long sword, not a damn old man cane. And Lord Snow, are your legs hurting? John hates the Lord Snow moniker that Sir Alistair hung on John the first day that he arrived. But no, John's legs aren't hurting. Alistair walks over and demands the truth. I'm tired, John admits. What you are is weak, Alistair tells John. When John protests that he won the battle, Alistair retorts that, no, you didn't win. Gren lost. Dismissed, John heads back to the Castle Black Armory alone and thinks sullenly that he doesn't have any friends. He thinks about the people he's training with and thinks about all of their deficiencies. John concludes that the more time he spends around these boys, the more he despises them. Gee, John, wonder why you don't have any friends, man. Come on. Anyways, inside the armory, John strips off his boiled leather, armor, and woolens and feels a chill rippling through his body. In a few years, he would forget what it felt like to be warm. No one had told him what the wall was like. No one except for Tyrion Lannister, that is. Even his uncle Benjen had abandoned familiarity with John once they got to the wall. Three days after John's arrival, John had heard that Benjen was leading men north of the wall to search for Sir Waymer Royce and Will. John begged to go with his uncle, but Benjen refused him. This is not Winterfell. On the wall, a man only gets what he earns. You're no ranger, John. Only a green boy with the smell of summer still on you. When the party departs and John comes to watch them leave, Ben again tells John no and that they'll speak when they return. Uh, except for that they won't, because, you know, Benjamin's gone forever at this point. <laughs> Sullen, John begins to miss his family, Bran, Rob, Rickon, even Sansa, but he misses Arya most of all. 
what he wouldn't give to be able to muss her hair up again. Oh. His pleasant and sad memories are interrupted by the entry of Gren and three of his friends into the armory. You broke my wrist, bastard. I'll break the other one for you if you ask nicely, John responds. When John reaches for his sword, the four jump him. Toad, one of his assailants, complains, You're making us look bad. You looked bad before I even met you, John replies. More insults, more shouts, more fighting. But when they start taunting John about his mother, he wrenches free and karate's the shit out of them before Donald Noy's voice rings out over the ruckus. Stop this now. John's would-be murderers accuse John of attempting to murder them, I guess. Noy tells them to go get patched up by Mr. Eamon, but not you, John. You're staying here. Then Donald Noy proceeds to dress John Snow down, and it is so goddamn good. First addressing the insults to John's mother, Donald Noy tells John that nothing they say can make or unmake who she was. John then thinks of his mother, and it's sad. In his dreams, she was beautiful and highborn, and her eyes were kind. Next, John complains about how cold it is, which results in Donald Noy telling him, which results in Donald Noy reading him the riot act. Yeah, it's cold, John. Mean and hard. That's the wall. It ain't no fairy tale. Oh, and by the way, you're here for life if you take your vows. Foreshadowing? Eh, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later. We then get some history of Donald Noy and John's eternal monologue. In a past life, Noy was the armor for House Baratheon, allegedly crafting Robert's Warhammer and smithing for Stannis Baratheon and also being a part of the Siege of Storm's End. He apparently lost an arm in one of the hundred battles that he fought across the land of Westeros, and then he joined the Night's Watch as the Castle Black Armor. When we cut back to the conversation, Donald warns John that his life may be cut prematurely short if he keeps being a bully. A bully? John is furious at the unjust accusation. Okay, right, John. Donald then tells John the truth. He's not only beaten all of them in the courtyard, he's humiliated them, acting like a little lordling. Does that make you proud, Donald asks? It, it kind of did, and that gives John a bit of a pause. And John, didn't you train with the Master of Arms at Winterfell? Doesn't that put you at a little bit of an advantage? Yeah, yeah, it does. Donald then tells John that these boys all came from brothels, taverns, decks, and alleys. They had no Master of Arms, no retinue of soldiers to train with. You're beating people who are at a massive disadvantage to you, Lord Snow. Don't call me that. I never, I didn't think. Best you start, Donna warns him, that or sleep with a dagger by your bed. Now go. And with that, bamf, Donald Noy sends John away. Outside, John catches sight of the wall and sees the light shining against it, making it feel alive. But this is the end of the world, or so it seems to say to John. Atop the wall, catapults, cranes, and men of the watch man the wall. And if the wall fell, John knew that the world fell with it. Makes you wonder what lies beyond, a voice says behind John. And why is it that when one man builds a wall, the next man immediately needs to know what's on the other side? Good question, Tyrion Lannister. John says there's nothing special beyond except for the mysteries of the haunted forest, manse raiders, wildlings, and potentially the others. So, kind of a lot. And grumpkins and snarks, Tyrion Lannister replies. Let's not forget them, Lord Snow. John is again being told that he's Lord Snow and he's not having any of it. Tyrion raises his eyebrow and tells John... Let them see that their words can cut you and you'll never be free of the mockery. If they want to give you a name, take it. Make it your own. Then they can't hurt you with it anymore. Sage advice, Tyrion. Perhaps take some of that your own advice when you become acting hand of the king in A Clash of Kings. Anyhow, the pair head off to grab some chow at the common hall. Tyrion asks after Ghost. John reports that he's chained him up at the old stables for the moment. But most of the time, he sleeps with John in Harden's tower. That's the one with the broken battlement, no? It is, but no one really cares where you sleep at Castle Black. Once the fortress had housed 5,000 fighting men, but now there's only about 500 men here now. The conversation shifts to Benjen. He's been away for too long. There have been a lot of rangers disappearing north of the wall. That's 
pretty unsettling. Anyways, they enter the hall, grab a bowl of stew, and sit away from the rest of the Watchmen when Sir Alistair Thorne approaches, ordering John to visit Lord Commander of Mormont's chambers. Is it Benjen? Did he return home safely? When I say jump, you don't question why. You say how high. Sir Alistair sort of replies, kind of paraphrasing. Tyrion tells Alistair to tell him what's up with, or the court will hear about what he's been doing up here. Alistair finally relents. It's not about Benjen, it's about Bran. Oh no, not Bran. John, I'm truly sorry, Tyrion tells John, putting a hand to John's arm. John rushes up to Lord Commander Mormont's room and, and bursts into the old bear's chambers. Bran, what does it say about Bran? Mormont hands the letter to John, and John reads what, writ what Rob has written. He begins crying. He woke up. The gods gave him back. He did wake up, but Mormont tells John to read on. Bran is crippled now, but John can't find in himself to be upset about that. At least not yet. John races back down to the common hall, yelling about Bran is going to live. He grabs Tyrion, twirls the dwarf around, shouting over and over that Bran will live, Bran will live, Bran will live. John notices a number of watch recruits and watchmen gather around him. He sees Gran there and he goes to him. Stay away from me, bastard, Gran replies. I'm sorry about your wrist. Rob used the same move on me once, only with a wooden blade. It hurt like seven hells, but yours must be worse. Look, if you want, I can show you how to defend against that, John tells Gren. Sir Alistair overhears John's words, and being a big-ass jerk, he says, Lord Snow wants to take my place now. I'd have an easier time teaching a wolf to juggle than you will training this aurochs. I'll take that wager, Sir Alistair. I'd love to see ghosts juggle. Everyone gasps at John's audacity, and then Tyrion laughs, and then is joined by others. Even Gren joins in the laughter. Everyone is laughing except for one person, Sir Alistair Thorne. He ain't laughing. Oh, no. That was a grievous error, Lord Snow, Sir Alistair says in the acid tones of an enemy. And that is Game of Thrones John 3. Definitely my favorite John chapter so far in Game of Thrones. What do you think, Emmett? Your favorite John chapter so far? Absolutely it is. Uh, my favorite John chapters in the book as a whole are the ones near the end, the white attack and everything that follows, the decisions John makes about whether he wants to stay in the Night's Watch, his conversations with the old bear and Maester Aemon. But of all the earlier ones, for the first two-thirds of Game of Thrones or so, this is definitely the best one. Yes. And that's because it shows Martin testing Jon Snow to see he's worthy of protagonist status instead of just describing his emotions <laughs> as the emo chosen one. <laughs> uh, he gets into the central question of what John's values are. And for, for George R. R. Martin, the proper heroic values are not strength, nor speed, nor skill at arms, but generosity, humility, and a desire to lift up the downtrodden. And that's what he <laughs> emphasizes in this chapter. Yeah, it sows does. the seeds for John becoming a leader by first establishing what it is Martin thinks John has to learn before he becomes a leader. And so John 3 is a really vital chapter for talking about the politics of A Song of Ice and Fire and what the author intends for us to take away about the social structure of the world he has created. If Catalan 4, the chapter we did last week, was about establishing the status quo of that world, John 3 is about the, the spark of inspiration to change it. Interesting. And, uh, I, I really love how Martin structures this chapter as, as a lesson. It's an educational process for John as well as us because... The author kind of pulls the rug out from under us in terms of how, what we're supposed to think about John and what he's doing as this chapter proceeds. As it opens, we're seeing John as a, as a, a badass in the training yard, and it's framed very positively in a classic fantasy, uh, young adult kind of way. Mm -hmm. The opening line makes reference to the, the Song of Swords. The courtyard rang to the Song of Swords. It's a very immediately exciting, attention-grabbing way to introduce us to Castle Black, to the, to the Night's Watch as a whole, to what's going on. 
uh, it, it inclines us to be excited, to think this is fun. You know, we're rooting for John. And that yeah. continues as the scene develops, and you learn that Gren is older and bigger than John, uh, calls him the bastard, sparking our sympathy for him. So John is being framed as an underdog. That certainly continues when uh, Sir Alistair, who is presented in the scene as a, a bad-tempered bully, refuses to give John credit. Quote, Thorn strode toward him, crisp black leathers, whispering faintly as he moved. He was a compact man of fifty years, spare and hard, with gray in his black hair and eyes like chips of onyx. The truth now, <laughs> he commanded. I'm tired, John admitted. His arm burned from the weight of the long sword, and he was starting to feel the bruises now that the fight was done. But you are as weak. I won. No, the Oryx lost. So again, you know, develops our sympathy for John. He's he's doing well against a bigger guy who's calling him names, and the, the instructor isn't giving him any credit for it. Not only that, but Alistair Thorne uh, furthers the stigma of the bastard name that Gren just brought up. Quote, that is a long sword, not an old man's cane, Sir Alistair said sharply. Are your legs hurting, Lord Snow? John hated that name, a mockery that Sir Alistair had hung on him the first day he came to practice. The boys had picked it up, and now he heard it everywhere. He slid the long sword back into his scabbard. No, he replied. So, you know, John's this bastardy is being continually stuck to him. Uh, being used to kind of overshadow his accomplishments and his skill. So, you know, overall, we're being presented with John as, again, the underdog, uh, as, as he was in Winterfell, being, you know, being left out of things and, and uh, being constantly uh, pushed to the edge of the circle, even as he proves himself, in the sense that yeah. proving himself doesn't matter. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Cynthia, that kind of struck me in rereading this chapter, is that Sir Alistair Thorne, Oh, so much reminds me of Gunnery Sergeant Hartman from mm -hmm. Full Metal Jacket, you know, with the uh, kind of the mistreatment of his of his of his recruits, the names that he gives them. Remember from the movie, it's Private Pile, Private Gomer Pile, you know, Cowboy and all these other names that he fixes on these 18, 19 and 20 year old kids at, at, um, at Paris Island, South Carolina. You have the same sort of motif here where. He affixes the name of Lord Snow on John. He does Oryx for Gren. Um, and he does Toad for uh, is it Toddler. Is that the guy's name? I can't remember the. Totter or something like that. Totter, yeah. 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 So he's he's making these diminutive names that really like kind of break at their their personality and their psychology. But yeah, it's, it's really cool, too, that very early on, it's clear to me that George is setting the foundation for John to become the Lord Commander of the night's watch and he's being shown early on what it how bad leaders work how someone like sir alistair thorne operates through fear through intimidation through being quote-unquote hard and sir alistair is plenty hard at least on the surface level but as we find out like when was the last time he was north of the wall you know the, the first time he goes north of the wall in the entirety of the story is in a Dance with Dragons, John Five. So we're talking like two or three years after this, this this event. So he's almost like a paper tiger more than anything else. Like he's he sounds rough and tough and hard and and everything, but he ain't, he ain't shit, man. He ain't shit. He ain't a real warrior like some of these other guys that John is going to be encountering along the way. Folks like Don Onoy, who I'm just gonna probably like gush over here in a few minutes. But but yeah, no, I, I think it's great um, that this kind of anti-mentor figure is set up in the person of Sir Alistair Thorne for John and John and the other guys rightfully hate him and Al Sir Alistair hates them all unrighteously back in my in my opinion I mean there's not really much of an opinion there I mean he's 
not doing a good job training these kids, that's for sure, in my opinion. Oh, I agree. It's hard without purpose. It's not even like I'm hard because the world is hard. I'm going to teach you lessons before you get beyond the wall. I'm sure that's how he justify himself. He has a speech yeah. like that in the show. But as we'll see with Sam in John's next chapter, it's folly. As John points out, like, we need every man. We need Sam, too. But beating him to death in the training yard is just a waste. That's that's not that's not doing anyone any good, least of all Sam. Uh, Sir Alistair is, is just, yeah, kind of angry and bitter and and breaks people, like you say. And he's not... Yeah, he's he's the worst that the Night's Watch has to represent, despite the sir in front of his name. You compare him to someone like Corn Halfhand, who actually yeah. instructs John and, and prepares him for what he's going to face. And Alistair comes off much the worst. But that's, yeah, that's all part of setting up this scene about setting up the Night's Watch as a kind of miserable place at first with... With, uh, with no one to help you. It's, John describes it as being cold both literally and metaphorically. Oh, yeah. uh, after the fight, he goes back into the armory, quote, inside John, inside John hung sword and scabbard from a hook in the stone wall, ignoring the others around him. Methodically, he began to strip off his mail, leather, and sweat-soaked woolens. Chunks of coal burned in iron braziers at either end of the long room, but John found himself shivering. The chill was always with him here. In a few years... He would forget what it felt like to be warm. <laughs> the weariness came on him suddenly as he donned the rough-spun blacks that were their everyday wear. He sat on a bench, his fingers fumbling with the fastenings on his cloak. So cold, he thought, remembering the warm halls of Winterfell, where the hot waters ran through the walls like blood through a man's body. There was scant warmth to be found in Castle Black. The walls were cold, cold here, and the people colder. So again, we have that comparison of Winterfell to a person, uh, the blood pumping, the hot water's pumping through it like blood through a person's veins, and the, the sense of identity that people draw from it, and that Castle Black for John right now is, is the opposite of that, that it's a place where people are cold and they don't have blood pumping through their veins, and you, know, you can see an allusion to the others in whites there, um, that like kind of this is the domain John has entered, where, where the warmth has fled, and what he doesn't realize is that he himself is, is acting coldly and, and not being warm to his fellow recruits uh, and that he's, he is succumbing to this process that he is describing as antagonistic to him. But of course, you know, we get why. He has he's no friends. Like you noted, John followed the rest back to the armory, walking alone. He often walked alone here. There were almost 20 in the group he trained with and yet not one he could call a friend. And he's, he's missing his siblings. There's that sad paragraph where he's going, th the classic Stark paragraph where they just remember all their siblings <laughs> one, one by one. They all do this. Um, you know, Rob, his rival and best friend and constant companion, Bran, stubborn and curious. Uh, he missed the girls too, even Sansa, who never called him anything but my half-brother. Um, and of course, he misses Arya most of all. And is describing her as, you know, fierce and willful and always getting in scrapes. So it's, you know, it's, it's very poignant. And, uh, you know, that, that furthers his isolation, the sense that he's not where he's supposed to be. As you were saying, Benjen has cut him loose up here, uh, you know, says, you know, on the wall a man gets only what he earns, you know, Ranger John, only a green boy with the smell of summer on you. And uh, John argues with him, and, and Ben makes it clear, we put aside our old families when we swear our vows. Your father will always have a place in my heart, but these are my brothers now. And the, again, all the all the hard, cold men in black is the quote other people yep. he's referring to. So again, this emphasis on being hard, on being cold, and all the, all the emotion fleeing from you. And of course, for John, part of the emotions fleeing from him are his romanticization of the Night's Watch that we've been getting into in previous chapters. That he thinks of it as a noble calling, and he believes all the songs that they're all like Benjen. Um, <laughs> but Benjen himself is the one kind of shredding that myth. And there's I love the little moment when uh, one of Benjen's ragers one of the ones who comes back as a white, 
uh, sang yes. a body song as he saddled his garin, and Ben smiled at that. So Ben's smiling at the songs, but he but he had no smile for his nephew. So you know, John is it's a perfect little way of encapsulating how John is being kind of kicked out of the songs and being disillusioned, and he's like watching them from the outside when he thought he'd be able to take part. Yeah, it's 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 great because Ben is kind of the best that the watch has to offer. Sure, but he's he's not what John expects. I, I think that's something that's really curious about, or not curious, but is but is interesting is that you have Ben being almost the pale imitation of Ned because we have in an earlier Brand chapter about how Ned is described as having a Lord's face and having a father's face. And the father's face was warm and was full of words of encouragement and would listen to people who were coming in from out of the, um, they were coming in from around the courtyard and from the different groups that are working in Winterfell. But then he had the Lord's face too. You know, Bran sees the Lord's face when when Ned executes Garrod at, at the start of A Game of Thrones in Bran 1. But you see this in Ben Stark, too, where you have Ben as this jocular, joking dude at the Feast of Winterfell. And even on the road up, he has a lot of concern for John and saying, oh, you thought you had wandered off and gotten snatched up by the others. And um, not, not so much here, because here Ben Stark is is he's the first ranger. He, he is a commander of men. So he has a first ranger face, much like Ned has the Lord's face there. And what's interesting too about Benjen is that George is consciously removing players who know about R plus L equals J. So Ned Stark, as we all know, dies at the end of a Game of Thrones. This is the end of Ben Stark's arc here, Benjen Stark's arc here in a Game of Thrones. This is the last we see of him in all five books so far. So it seems to me that George is removing different pieces off the board to ensure that the mystery of John's parentage remains for the reader as uh, unfortunately or unfortunately the show caught up to him. So it's not much of a mystery anymore. Not really much of a mystery if you're a, a careful reader as well, uh, despite the bad people. And, um, you know, so that's it, it's interesting. I, I like the Benjamin stuff here a lot in this chapter, and I do. Uh, to kind of circle back to a point you made earlier, you had made an excellent point in our Catlin 2 episode about how Winterfell represents John having the water, the hot water rushing through the, the walls, and that symbolizes Jon Snow. So you have the coal, the ice, and the fire kind of symbolized there. Here, it's almost it's interesting that you had brought up the point that the, the Night's Watch is calling him to be cold and hard and be emotionless. And... It's symbol. The wall symbolizes the people that are in the Night's Watch. It symbolizes who Benjen Stark becomes when they get to the wall. It symbolizes people that we like later on, like Corrin Halfhands, who I, I think Steve Atwell described him as a kind of Bushido-like character, devoid of emotion, just kind of doing his duty without thinking about the about without any emotionality behind it. And that's the character that they want John to be. The question is whether that's a good thing for John to be just an emotion, emotionless, duty-bound character. And, and, and in my opinion, no, I don't think that's good. I think John being uh, having hold of his emotions is good for the most part, though it does lead to some bad decision-making in A Dance of Dragons when he is the Lord Commander and he's supposed to just be making these emotionless decisions of leaving the people at hard home to die, refusing Alice Carr Stark, and, and these different decisions that end up coming to bite him in the ass and at the end of the book. But 
that's a discussion, I guess, for a later time, unless you've got something you want to add to it. Sure. It's the Jedi situation, right? Where you're trying to raise people into this, you know, uh, demanding institution that requires you to strip yourself of your individuality and your past life to a large extent. But that's really difficult for people to do, especially if you're giving up the best part of yourself. And John has to negotiate that. Uh, early on in the process, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of pure scales falling from eyes stuff about what the Night's Watch is like. And Benjen is part of that. I mean, John has this vision of, of Ben lying dead, covered in blood when he's riding off, and it makes John sick. He asks himself, what am I becoming? So it's, you know, it's all part of, you know, entering the world of adulthood and mortality and learning that if, you know, the, the things you believed in about the Night's Watch can happen, but you have to create them. They're not just going to be there waiting for you. At this point with John, you know, early in the chapter, he's he's alone, he's angry, he's disillusioned, and he's convinced that he's thrown his life away. Uh, yeah. You know, as he, as he talks with uh, Donald Noy later about, you know, Noy had a life and came as an adult and had done a bunch of things before he got to the wall, but John thought he was going to do those things here, at the wall, and now he's fearing that that's not what his life is. And there's the quote, No one had told him the Night's Watch would be like this. No one except Tyrion Lannister. The dwarf had given him the truth on the road north, but by then it had been too late. John wondered if his father had known what the wall would be like. He must have, he thought, and that only made it hurt the worst. And that links it all up right there, because now you get this this disillusionment about the wall linked to the ultimate source of John's anger and confusion and shame, which is his father. And his father's refusal to talk about his mother and refusal to reconcile his honorable image with the existence of John. Uh, so it's, you know, John is, John was clinging to the Night's Watch, as we talked about a bit with John 1, as this kind of life preserver, as a way to get out of Winterfell and those contradictions and away from Catelyn's eyes and his confusion about Ned. But now it's felt like he's just entered the, the same situation, you know, it's where he's, he's on the outskirts and he's confused about what he should do. So, he, you know, he, and this, he's worried that, He's, he's worried that he's, to quote Arrested Development, that he's made a huge mistake. Uh, <laughs> and that he's, he's doomed his life. And at this moment, uh, Gren and co. attack. Uh, again, he's outnumbered, so we're inclined to sympathize. There's, there's four of them. Again, they call him a bastard. You broke my wrist, bastard boy. Todd goes after John's mom, as you said. So the, the cumulative effect of everything up to this point in the chapter is, is to create sympathy for John. And, and the sense that he's backed into a corner and he's the underdog. Uh... But all of that, all of that gets reframed when Donal Noy shows up, and I agree with you completely. He is he is one of my favorite minor characters in the series for sure. Yeah, Donald Noy is just terrific. Yeah, <laughs> he's just he's he's such a great little character. Not a little character because he's he he's a huge dude, but he's so much fun when he dresses John down. Man, like that moment in this chapter just made the chapter for me. I could just read. Yes. Donald Noy, letting people know who they are and how they can be better any day of the week. And, and Donald Noy is, is so great of a character. I mean, if you think about all the stuff that he did in his history, before we even get to a Game of Thrones, he made Robert's Warhammer. He fought in the Siege of Storm's End. He was Stannis Baratheon's armor. He fought in a hundred battles across, across Westeros. Probably a little bit of exaggeration, but it doesn't matter because that's the legend of Donald Noy. And the interesting thing about the legend of Donald Noy is that there's there's no like um, subversion of that. There's no reason why exactly. we wouldn't think that Donald Noy didn't do all these amazing things because what he does throughout the narrative is continuously prove that he is a badass motherfucker. Like this guy is intensely good and an intensely well-drawn minor character. And this 
points, in my opinion, to his strength in George's writing, and that you can have a character like Donald Noy, who is not a point of view character, not even a major character, like you would say, like that Stannis or Robert are. This guy is very, is not very minor, but he's minor enough that he's only in a couple chapters here and there, but he paints this gorgeous portrait around him, his history, who he is as a person, his physical disability of not having his arm, and it, it, it draws the portrait up off the page and makes him very easy for me to see, even though he wasn't featured in Game of Thrones, the show, um, to, in my opinion, to Game of Thrones' detriment, because I think they needed a character like Don Noy there. Um, go ahead. Oh, I, no, I completely agree with everything you just said there. He um, And we, we know that the, the stories of him are true because he goes out like a badass motherfucker uh, in a storm of yeah. swords, taking down a giant with him and leaving leaving John the Wall. But yeah, it, it, all, it all starts here. When, when everything everything up to this point in this chapter, everything we've both been talking about has been is completely reframed by how Donald Noy describes uh, the situation to John. First, he says that, you know, yes, Castle Black, this is the way Castle Black is, and complaining won't change that and won't make you more at home here. Uh, the quote is, yes, cold and hard and mean, that's the wall, and the men who walk it, not like the stories your wet nurse told you. Well, piss on the stories and piss on your wet nurse. This is the way it is, and you're here for life, same as the rest of us. Uh, you know, not not mocking him the way Alistair Thorne is doing, but giving him the, the reality he has to deal with and inviting him to deal with it. And his mm-hmm. and he doesn't just he doesn't just criticize John. He's he's trying to give him a, a new foundation for his yeah. life for his identity. He's perspective, says, exactly perspective. He, he's telling him you know develop some class consciousness and a sense of brotherhood with these people. Yeah. And what I really love about this part of the chapter, and I agree with you, it's my favorite part of the chapter, is how bluntly political Martin gets with this. That's what really, I think, elevates this chapter above similar chapters in other uh, fantasy novels, other genre fiction, is because, you know, everything else in this chapter, as good as it is, you, you know, is, is, is expected and, and predictable to a large degree. The, the drill sergeant, John mm-hmm. not, not fitting in, uh, him getting dressed down, but usually the content of the speech which is, is, is often very generic and just like, you have to be a leader, John, you have to find right. it within you. You have to learn one thing about each of these guys and get them to be your friends. Not there's anything wrong with that, but it, this is this is much more interesting and much more direct about yes. the actual dynamic bet- between these characters and what John needs to do about it. Because what Donald makes clear to John is it doesn't matter that you're smaller or younger. They're afraid of you, not the other way around. Uh, you know, for you know, John says when Donald Noah calls him a bully, he says they were the ones who came after me. Four of them. Four that you've humiliated in the yard. Four that who are probably afraid of you. I've watched you fight. It's not training with you. Put a good edge on your sword and they'd be dead meat. You know it, I know it, they know it. You leave them nothing. You shame them. Does that make you proud? And what, what Donald Noah is saying is, yeah, this isn't badass. This isn't fun. This isn't the song of swords. This is just you kicking them because you can. Because you're angry about your life and the decision you made to be here. Yeah, and they have they have no chance against you. They showed up for them. Showed up not because they like picking on you. It's because that's the only way they stood a chance. Because you're so much better at this than they are. Yeah, and you have, and even more than that, Donald gets into why John is so much better than they are. It's not because he's the hero and he's just innately the awesomest. It's because he was raised, you know, with with live steel in his hand. He was trained by a knight. He was given this expectation every day, a, a task to meet and ways to meet it. And he didn't have to 
you know, he didn't have to help his dad pick out clams and, and cockles and mussels. He didn't have to help his yeah. dad do the farming. He didn't have to make barrels or fetch drinks oh for gosh, the customers yeah. because his dad's a lord. So all John has to do all day is do stuff like learn how to fight with swords because right. that's the class he's in. And Donald Noy is trying to say, John, you've never realized this. That, that, yeah, you might have been at the bottom of the totem pole of your little family at Winterfell, but that totem pole was itself at, in the penthouse. You're still above everybody else. And, you know, he's, Donald Noy says to him, think on this boy. None of these others have ever had a master at arms until Sir Alistair. And this is the part I love. Their fathers were farmers and wagon men and poachers, smiths and miners and oars on a trading galley. What they know of fighting, they learned between decks in the alleys of Old Town and Lannisport, in wayside brothels and taverns on the King's Road. They may have clacked a few sticks together before they came here, but I promise you, not one in twenty was ever rich enough to own a real sword. So how do you like the tastier victories now, Lord Snow? And I <laughs> love that. He's, there's so many levels to that. On one level, he's almost talking to us, like saying, yeah, how do you like John's victories now? Look back at right. that scene. How does it feel? Do you, do you realize what you're seeing is a noble beating up a peasant? Because right. he's angry, like that's what you're looking at. It's it's John. We like him, but that's what's objectively happening here. Is it that much different than Joffrey cutting Micah? It's a difference of degree, not kind. Joffrey's much more sadistic yeah. about it. Obviously, Micah gets killed because of it. And that's not the case with John. But at the end of the day, Gren is afraid of John the same way Micah was afraid of Joffrey, even though yeah. Joffrey was younger and smaller. It didn't matter because Joffrey had a sword and was a prince, and that's the dynamic here. Uh, and Donald always is. He, I love how he just he's he, he describes it. He doesn't just say they're they're peasants. He just says their fathers are farmers, wagonmen, poachers. They're from Old Town. They're from Lannisport. They're from brothels. They're from taverns. And he can say this with authority because he's a peasant. He's not noble right. born. He's he's a blacksmith. This is what makes him different from Alice or Thorn or even someone we love like Maester Aemon. He can't bring this perspective, but Donal Noy can because he's he's one of those people. And yeah, he he led a glorious life, but. He was always, you know, he was, he was working for Stannis. He wasn't Stannis. He wasn't in right. charge. He was he was in service, too. So he has that perspective, and he brings it to John. So I'm, I'm curious about something that just kind of occurred to me. We, we get his perspective on what these other kids, their, their backgrounds, where they're coming from, how they haven't been fighters. But Donald Noy is uniquely positioned to almost be the bridge between noble characters and the peasants because... He has been interacting his entire life with the high lords of the realm, whether that's whether that's Stefan Baratheon, whether that's Robert and Stannis and that little fucking terrorist Renly. Like these are the people <laughs> that 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 Donald Noy has been interacting with. And, you know, I want to say that I can maybe this is just my projection and my reading too much of the text, but I can almost see a bit of Donald Noy in, you know, our Character we have to mention every episode, Stannis Baratheon, because we have Stannis doing things like lifting Davos Seaworth up into knighthood and and eventually lordship, despite his background as someone who was born in Fleet Bottom, someone who was a smuggler, someone who was of low class and not noble born, but he's still lifting these people up. And I I can almost see Donald Noy's influence in Stannis making that decision because he has that, again, that bridging mechanism built into his characterization that allows him to let the nobles see that the life of a peasant is not as easy as as your life out here and that there should be some means of them advancing their station in life as you know he kind of helps out these other kids too if you think about it he's telling john you're 
you're being a jerk, you're being a bully, you're beating these kids up, you could be better than that. And wouldn't you know it, John does get a little bit better by that by the end of his uh, by the end of this chapter. Yeah, that's a great point about Stannis. I mean, it's interesting to consider Donal Noy was at the Siege of Storm's End. He saw Stannis knight Davos, presumably. He was there. Yes. So maybe he's thinking about that. Maybe he's thinking, okay, I've got this other... It's another Stannis. I've got yet another sullen, like, second son, always outshadowed by the charismatic one named Rob. It's it's the <laughs> exact same situation. Maybe maybe I can encourage him to to follow that same path and be more aware of his class consciousness. Because, yeah, that's something consistent about Stannis. If you look at Davos, if you look at Claw Isle, if you look at him letting the wildlings through the wall, even, like... Mm-hmm. That he rouses the mountain clans of all people in the north. Like, of all the nobles, they're kind of the most, the the, the, the least wealthy, the least, uh, you know, kind of uh, flamboyant, and, and the, the least associated with the parts of nobility that Stannis doesn't like. Yeah. So he's he's kind of, Stannis is consistently framed in this way. Or, like, you compare him to Renly when Catelyn describe, uh, takes a whole paragraph to describe all the stuff in Renly's tent. Compare that to Stannis uh, starving with his men at Storm's End, or just sitting in a room with nothing in Theon's first Winds of Winter chapter. Yep. You can sense Donald Noy kind of pushing, and we know Stannis loves and respects Donald Noy because he tells Jon and Storm that if Donald had lived the Battle of Castle Black, he'd be a far better choice for Lord Commander than any of the other candidates. So yeah. you do you do sense an affinity there, and I do think Donald Noy might have that in mind, be pushing Jon uh, in that direction. And I think it's also a statement about the genre because Martin, you know, what Martin positions as Stannis' saving grace is that stuff that he wants to save, he chooses saving the realm, that he lifts up Davos, that he listens to Davos. That's not just incidental to Stannis' character. For Martin, it's the core of it. It's what makes the guy yeah. who burns people worth caring about. Right, exactly. Uh, and I think I think you can see that as a statement about the genre when you look at this scene between John and Donald Noy, that what Martin is saying is your emo messiah, your fantasy hero your bastard prince, he's worth nothing unless he knows this, unless he takes this into account. If he doesn't realize the advantages he's had, if he doesn't keep them in mind when he's dealing with people, if he doesn't try to lift up the people who haven't had those advantages, then it doesn't mean anything. Then he's just another, he's just a nice, nice rich guy with a sword. Sure, he's nicer than Joffrey, but if John didn't keep this in mind, he wouldn't be worth anything. John wouldn't make the decision to make Satin his squire if he didn't have this conversation. John wouldn't tell Bowen Marsh that who are the wildlings if not men if it weren't for this conversation. He wouldn't be able right. to make the bond. Like when he goes to Craster's Keep in Clash of Kings and, you know, Sam tells him to get Gilead and John is furious at first, but he really wants to at some level and knows it's wrong to just leave her there. And I think you can yeah. trace that back to this scene when Donald Noy told him that you have, you know, you have a responsibility. You you start with a lot of a lot of advantages and a lot of privileges, and it doesn't change the fact that anyone can call you a bastard. But the reason that everyone's calling you a bastard is because it's their only weapon against you. Right. Yes, you are a snow, but you are Lord Snow. A castle-raised bastard is far better off than a true-born son of a, a tanner or a barkeep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that John has, has never had to consider before. And it's something... Donald Noy emphasizes you have to know that if you want to be in the Night's Watch. You could get away with that at Winterfell. You can't get away with that here because yeah. these are your brothers. These are the people you have to deal with. And he says, you know, you know, we have men on the wall whose mothers were whores. He's like trying to acclimate John to the idea that, hey, maybe it's kind of insulting, John, that you think your mother being a prostitute is the worst thing imaginable and makes her <laughs> inadequate and like isn't right. like, why do you think that, John? Does that devalue everyone here for whom that's the case? 
Or, you know, he says, you, you think you had it hard being a High Lord's bastard? That boy Jaren is a Septon's get, and Cotter Pike is the baseborn son of a tavern wench. Again, explicitly introducing class. Martin trying to point out that, you know, that there's this ex extreme yawning gaps in this society that John has to be made aware of. And I like that Don Illinois brings up Cotter Pike, saying, now he commands Eastwatch by the sea. He's trying to show the Night's Watch as a place of social advancement, as a place where you can rise high, and that John can do the same, but not if he behaves like this. If he, there's the quote, the road you're walking, one of your brothers will slit your throat for you one night. Like, that this is not, as you say, that John has this potential to be better, but he's he's never going to unlock it if he keeps acting like this to his brothers, and if he keeps being so unaware of them as people, if he just despises them and hates them. Uh, and that's, you know, as much as, much as we both love Stannis, Stannis lacks... Stannis is always convinced on ideological, theoretical, philosophical grounds. Yes. Like the personal connection that John that John can make, that John believes in, the, you know, that Stannis has that, but he's repressed it. Ever since Proudwing, he's been telling himself, no, no, no feelings. No Shove feelings. that down. Yeah. Stamp it all the way down. Uh, and I think I agree with what you said earlier. John has to find a balance there where he's aware of this bigger picture while still kind of cueing into his personal emotions and the stuff he cares about. Yeah, he has to indulge. He can't indulge too far in his emotions, but he can't be emotionless either when he makes his decisions. Um, but the thing is, too, like you, you brought up that noise says your brothers may slit your throat while you while you're sleeping. The Night's Watch. I, I think Noy also is calling John to recognize that the Night's Watch is is a penal colony, for lack of a better term. There True. is this entire location is built of. I mean, you have people like. Benjamin Stark, Sir Alistair Thorne, uh, to a lesser extent, Lord Commander Mormont, uh, Donald Noy himself, who are honorable men. I shouldn't have put uh, Sir Alistair Thorne in that, that category, but they're they're basically, they came here on their own accord. Again, Sir Alistair doesn't fit that. Again, damn, that's a fucked up Screw Alistair Thorne. The rest of your yeah. point is absolutely correct, sir. Yes. Fuck that guy. I yeah. agree with you. But you also have people like the rapers that John was coming up the King's road with that, you know, attack John and a number of these people are involved in the mutiny at Craster's keep in a storm of swords. So you could be doing the right thing and saying the right words and you can still die and still be killed by your fellow brothers. Cause these, these are not the, the pleasant, nice people of Winterfell, John, these are the people of the wall. These are the hard people that are a lot of them don't want to be here but they've been forced here at sword point to come up to the wall or face execution and or um dismemberment and that's something that john needs to be aware of if he's going to uh, progress forward in his his command and uh, you know john also as we know he also gets that that knife that one of her brothers will slit your throat for it one night in this case though it's the the high command of the night's watch that does the deed at the end of a dance of dragons but Still, it's a dangerous place, and it's, uh, it's John's best interest to heed Noy's warning and provide himself all the opportunity he can to survive for as long as he can in a really hard place to survive in, for sure. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's That's the interesting contradiction of the Night's Watch. It's both a place where it's relatively meritocratic and a place where your birth doesn't necessarily stop your advancements. G.R. Mormont has the great line later in this book of, we are all one great house. Uh, on the other hand, of course, that's not entirely true because he's also putting Alistair Thorne in charge of training just because he's a nobleman and a knight. And, as you say, it's also a penal colony and most people are not here willingly. And while some of them are here for 
I think, entirely defensible uh, and kind of ex- ex- politically exploited crimes like poaching, as we were saying about Will. Yes. Some of the other ones are here because they are violent, uh, um, and some of them continue to brag about it. And finding that balance, you know, like like the balance of ice and fire that John himself represents <laughs> is, is a difficult task. And I think you see some Night's Watchmen at one end of the spectrum and some at the other. I think the, the old bear ends up being kind of naive about the people he's leading. Yep. Um, and the fact that he doesn't see the mutiny coming and the, even the way he acts in his final moments at Craster's Keep when he's still trying to give orders to people who are very clearly mutinying against him. Uh, <laughs> I think ultimately he he believes too much in his image of the Night's Watch and can't really see the hardness underneath. Then you have someone like Corin Halfhand, who I overall uh, like and think is, is a badass, as we've said. But, you know, he also tortures people without a blink. Yes. So he, he might be an example of someone who's kind of gone too far in the opposite direction. And while John needs to learn from him, he probably shouldn't go as far as Corin Halfhand has gone. So John has to has to negotiate this balance, but he's never going to do that if he's not effectively taught. And something I really love about this chapter is how you can, can contrast what Donald Noy was is teaching him with what Sir Alistair was teaching him. Oh, and yeah. How much, how much more effective Donald Noy is as a teacher. Like, because, I mean, Sir Alistair was kind of getting at the same point when he said, no, you didn't win, the Oryx lost. That's kind of the point Donald Noy is making, that, no, this isn't a victory, a triumph for you. This is you beating up someone who never had a chance. But Sir Alistair can't frame it like that. All he can frame it as, you both suck. That's, that's, his, <laughs> that's his filter. That's his interpretation. So no lesson is learned. Gren doesn't learn anything. John doesn't learn anything. No one came away from the training yard better today, which is the whole point. And Alistair right. Fone has completely lost sight of that. But Donald Noy hasn't. And, you know, you can, you can tell he's a much more effective teacher because it works. And this is where you have to give John credit. And this is, of course, what ultimately separates him from someone like Joffrey, despite the comparison I was drawing earlier. And that is, is that he listens and he gets it at a, at a clearly deep fundamental level. When Donald Noy is questioning the... Uh, his, his being proud of these victories, the quote is, John hesitated. He did feel proud when he won. Why shouldn't he? But the armor was taking that away too, making it sound as if he were doing something wrong. And then even better later, when Donald Noy lays out from exactly where his opponents have come from in life, John, and he calls him Lord Snow again, uh, don't call me that, John said sharply, but the force had gone out of his anger. Suddenly he felt ashamed and guilty. And that's just great. That's John realizing... That's John taking it seriously. And for me, this is this is a great model. Yes. Uh, you know, obviously, talking about people coming at places from their privilege and trying to understand relative advantages they have over people is a discussion all of us have on social media every day with varying degrees of heat, because uh, that's just <laughs> the world we live in. Uh, but I think this is, a, a, this is a model for it, I would almost say. A model of how you can be made to realize that you had an advantage you were not aware of and were exploiting it in an unfair fashion. And recognize yeah. that and change your behavior and deal with it. Uh, this is uh, this is for me a really an optimistic way of looking at it. Whereas I think with a lot of I think with a lot of Tyrion chapters you get into the more pessimistic side where he almost realizes the privilege he holds yeah, over yeah, the yeah, people, yeah, yeah. but is still kind of ultimately unable to break through. Uh, John, on the other hand, let's give him credit. He he immediately realizes, oh, I'm the bully. When, it, when it's laid out for him and Donald Noy lays out where they came from, that really has an impact on John. That he, he never thought about what he must look like to someone who's just wielding, just used to wielding sticks. Whereas, again, like that's a. Again, Donald Noy said they were clacking sticks together. That feels like a direct reference to me to Arya and Micah clacking sticks together in, in Sansa 1. 
and John is realizing, oh, I was the Joffrey in that situation. I mean, not really, because he doesn't know about that fight, but that's, <laughs> he realizes that that's the position he was in. And he realizes that's not who he wants to be, and that he, he not only is shamed, but guilty. And he, he, feels, he feels bad about what he's done to these boys. And that's that's the that's the foundation of, of John's arc from here on in that he he wants to wants to do better than that. There's another great moment like that later in this first book, when he gets pissy about being made a steward when he gets accepted <laughs> right. to the Night's Watch, and Sam this great Sam moment where Sam explains to him, no, that's how you know he wants you in charge. He wants you near him. That's how leadership works. Right. And John, you know, John says it's not what I wanted, and Sam reminds him, you know, not all of us are here for the asking. And again, John immediately feels guilty. And ashamed and says to himself, you know, if Sam has found his courage, I, I have to as well, and apologizes. And that's, you know, that's what makes John more than just the, the, the emo, bland, messiah character he's often framed as. And I get why he's framed that way. We talked about that in his first couple of POV chapters. But this, for me, is what elevates Jon Snow as a character, are his values, and the way he recognizes this, and sets out as a, as a Night's Watchman, as a Lord Commander, to reflect what he has learned here. And I think that's really, really moving and well done. I really agree with that, and I think it's a great way you put it. And what's interesting, though, about this is that John doesn't immediately have this come to Jesus moment and is like, I I see the light now, the error of my ways, and now I'm going to be better because that's how bad fiction is written. That's not how good fi- fiction is written. Yes. And yes. so George allows John to marinate in the instruction that Donald Noy gives him and, you know, when him and Tyrion go into the hall, he sees Gren in the hall and he doesn't immediately go out to him and be like, Gren, Gren, let me show you how, he, you know, Rob cut me that one time, but then I had done blah, 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 blah. Instead, he, he looks at him, he thinks he looks at Gren thoughtfully for a moment before turning away. Because as an author, George wants us to marinate in what the lessons that John has learned. And so George has another mechanism that he utilizes to bring um, John more fully into that period, into that moment where you have that triumphant moment where he does go out to Grand at the end of the chapter. And that comes in the form of Bran Stark and the news about Bran and how that inspires John to be, to be a better Jon Snow than he was previously. Yes, that's a great point you just made. I love that Martin doesn't have John just walk out of the armory and bump into <laughs> Grand because that is, I've read that story a dozen times. Because, yes. I mean, again, this is, this is, this scene, this chapter is in every fantasy novel ever. There is a version <laughs> yeah. of this scene. Yes. Every YA novel, pretty much every genre fiction you care to name, there's this scene. Uh, and in most of those scenes, John would bump right into Gren. And again, the, the speech would have been about uh, just be a leader, something very generic, not very pointed and explicitly political about the, the class uh, disparities here. But yeah, instead, it, it, it transitions into John hearing the news about Bran. Uh, and that is that is what sparks his reaching out to Gren. Is his overwhelming feeling of, of relief and joy, and like it's a miracle. And I love he's running around telling everyone, "Bran will live, Bran will live," and it's yeah. it's just it's very sweet. And that's when he goes to Gren. And I love that because it's very organic. It, it happens not just because John was told to, but because he's feeling good. He's feeling generous in this moment. Something wonderful has happened to him, and he wants to pass it forward. And that feels much more organic and personal to me than just. Like if John had just run into Gren, you would just it would just be the beats. He's just feeling the beats and going through the motions. And this is mm-hmm. it's still the same structure, but Martin kind of layers the the emotions in in a way that makes it feel more rewarding. And like so, when John goes over and smiles to Gren, it feels it feels really good, and it feels like you're 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 with him and his emotions in that moment. Um, 
And like I said, I think, you know, gen- generosity of spirit is something that Martin clearly believes in very strongly and believes is the the key to doing good as a person and is often the key for when you fall short as a person. Uh, and I like that he emphasizes that here. And like you say, it's it's uh, rooted in Bran as kind of this 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 symbol of, of John's rebirth in this moment. Yes, it really is because it's uh, it's cool because... Bran as a character inspires so much good seemingly in those around him. It's interesting to note that back in Catelyn 2, Ned wanted to bring Bran south with him because of his kind and loving nature. Ned says, Sir Roderick tells me there is bad feeling between Rob and Prince Joffrey. No doubt. That is not healthy. Bran can bridge that distance. He is a sweet boy, quick to laugh, easy to love. Let him grow up with the young princes. Let him become their friend as Robert became mine. Our house will be safer for it. Seeing this in action with John is is great because as soon as John finds out that Bran, Bran doesn't even have any influence besides Rob writing a letter and letting John know that Bran is alive, that he's woken up. But it it gives John the opportunity to make a friend in, in the Night's Watch. The mere thought of Bran... As a cool kid that he loves a lot, helps John to become, you know, this guy who goes up to up to Gren and starts immediately helping Gren, helping out someone who is a lesser fighter than him to become a better fighter and to become a become a friend because you know that friendship that John and Gren develop progresses throughout the story. You know, we have it throughout every single book where Gren and John become fast friends. You have Pipar later on and Samwell as well. You kind of have that kind of grouping together and it all stems, and it all stems from this, uh, this moment of, again, from Donald Noy's instruction to the idea of Bran waking up, influencing John to reach out to someone that he wouldn't normally reach out to. And it's, it's great. I love it. It's, it's just terrific, man. It's, it's really sweet and emotional and it's, you could kind of feel its poignancy kind of, running through the pages and on up, up my spine, up my spine, at least. Mine, mine as well, sir. It's, it's a, it's a counter to the cold and hard world that John has been inside. You know, yes. Bran named his wolf summer. And now that there's a, there's a summer in John's heart and he feels, he feels warmth <laughs> and he's, he's lifting up Tyrion and, you know, swooping him around. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a moment of real connection. And yeah, Bran is consistently used that way. Look at a dance with dragons when Theon's at his low point begging before the heart tree just to die as Theon. And then Bran speaks to him from the heart tree and calls him Theon. And there's there's a real catharsis and a feeling to that. And it seems like it's going to continue from Theon's first Winds of Winter chapter with Bran calling Theon's name from the bird. So, yeah, Bran is, you know, not just not just a sweet kid, although he's also that. He's, he's framed as like a, a kind of a, a healing balm within the narrative that where, where, where he goes... You know, things things are going to be okay when he's brought up. It's it's as a source of kind of warmth and inspiration. So yes, yeah, I love that about Bran. It's 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 really used effectively here, and like you say, it all it all culminates in John making the decision to not just be a friend to Grin, but a teacher, a better teacher than Alice or Thorne, a teacher like Donal Noy was to him. And I, you know, look if you want, I can I can show you how to defend that. And I, I specifically love that he brings up Rob because it's it's like a moment where he's transferring between brothers. He's bringing up the memory of Rob and how Rob mm-hmm. did that to him, but now he's shifting to Gren, his new brother, and passing that on. He's he's bringing almost almost like bringing Gren within the family. My brother did this to me, and now I'm doing this to you, my brother. Uh, and it's it, it it's this is the the seed for the moment later in the book when he makes the decision to not go off with Rob, 
but instead to stick with his new brothers at the Night's Watch. And that it's, it's, a, it's a perfect way to end the chapter. Yeah, and it's, of course, interesting to note that Gren is one of those people that brings John back from his attempted desertion from the Night's Watch at the very end of A Game of Thrones. So that circular nature of friendship uh, circles itself throughout the book, and it's, uh, it's, it's terrific. Um, but yeah, so um, transitioning to kind of our likes and dislikes of this chapter, uh, I, I've pretty much already said that I adore Donald Noy and find him great and one of my favorite minor characters and love the way that Martin writes him and writes a writes a lot of these minor characters with a lot of depth and with a lot of emotion and spirit. I think it's great. The dude is a legend and is baiting and trapping John and making him reconsider his ways was splendidly done. Um, kind of as like a structure thing. I really look at this chapter almost as a short story novella with John starting out one way and learning lessons from three minor figures, Donald Noy, Benjamin and Tyrion, and then having learned those lessons improves himself. So that's the thing that the things that I like about the chapter. I really, I really, really like this chapter. Uh, if you guys can tell already, yeah. And there's not much more to say about Donald Noy. We'll get to him when he gives his famous uh, comparison between the Baratheon brothers to elements <laughs> and, and metals in the Clash of Kings, and then of course in a Storm of Swords when he believes John about the Wildling Corn Halfhand story, leaves him in charge at Castle Black, which is of course a very significant decision that highly influences John's election as Lord Commander. And then goes out like a badass in the mm-hmm. battle against the giant. So much, much more fun times with, with Donald Noy to come. Oh, yeah. Uh, some, something I like about the chapter, we've kind of touched on this, is the, the constant use of ice and fire imagery throughout this chapter. It comes up again and again in relation to John. Uh, it's Part of it, of course, is just reminders of the temperature to, to ground us at Castle Black. You know, last chapter we were introduced to King's Landing, the most prominent setting in the series. In this one, we are introduced to Castle Black, which is the second most prominent setting in the series. It's got more yes. chapters than Winterfell at this point. So it's, it's it's important to ground us there, but it also, of course, acts as representative of John's heritage and as the kind of the middle path needs to walk in a lot of ways, as we were alluding to earlier in the episode. Something specifically fascinated by in the imagery is the contrast between John's complaint that Castle Black is, quote, too cold, and the way Martin associates John himself with that same cold, with ice and cold. There's the quote early in the chapter. Under black wool, boiled leather and mail, sweat trickled icily down John's chest as he pressed the attack. Again, both ice and fire sweat from heat, but it's, it's trickling icily. Later on, right after his duel with Gren, John took off his helm as the other boys were pulling Gren to his feet. The frosting morning air felt good on his face. He leaned on his sword, drew a deep breath, and allowed himself a moment to savor the victory. So, you know, the, the cold he's bemoaning, it feels good in that moment. He's drawing strength from it. And then, when Donald always dressing him down, there's the quote, John was cold with rage. Can I go? So, you know, he's... Cold is something he wants to resist. It's something he doesn't want to be, but it's it's also part of him. It's part of how he's described. It's a consistent use of the adjectives and imagery surrounding John. Uh, and yeah. I think this works on a number of levels. It symbolizes how John is overlooking his stark identity and the privileges it grants him in this chapter. That he's talking about the cold all around him, but he's missing the cold inside himself that he's kind of inflicting on on these people. Uh, it connects him to Ned. Ned is, of course, so often described as cold and frozen. His eyes, his face, his demeanor by many, many different people in the story. Yet, of course, he has that warm, beating heart underneath that Catelyn describes. Yes. As, as the sweet heart beneath the solemn face. And that's something that comes out of John in this chapter, too. And it also hints the constant cold imagery surrounding John that hints that despite his protest, that he's actually right where he should be. That he's... He's, he's, he has to fulfill that, the cold part of him and the warm part of him. He has to bring both ice and fire into play. He has to kind of 
have the strength that Donald Noe is talking about to stand firm and hard at the wall, but also have that, that beating heart that leads him to make the correct decisions there. So yes. I, I, I love that uh, Martin is clearly thinking about these themes with John in just just basically even little descriptions, just the little adjectives, the, the metaphors he uses about John. He's always bringing up ice and fire and how they relate to his personality. And that's, you know, that's obviously all of that is grist for the R plus L equals J mill, but it really, really grounds you in his character and what Martin is trying to do with him. So I really like that stuff in this chapter. Yeah, I agree. Couldn't say it better, as, as I always say, and you as always say. Just kind of our thing. Um, Quite. <laughs> yeah, that's our thing. Uh, in terms of my dislikes of this chapter, there's really only one major one, and that it some of the beats of the chapter feel a little bit forced. The main one is when Tyrion and John are talking about Ghost and how everyone is scared of Ghost. And then Tyrion goes right into, the talk is, your uncle is too long away. Well, okay, I mean, yeah, but it's a weird transition because George had a better place to transition earlier when Tyrion asked John, why is it that one man builds a wall, the next man immediately is to know what's on the other side? Then you go right into, the talk is, your uncle is too long away. That makes more logical sense. The conversation doesn't necessarily follow. It just kind of seems a little scattershot. So that beat feels a little forced, unfortunately. But like I said, there's not really a whole lot to dislike about this chapter. It's just something that I often notice in these rereads that some of these beats and the way that was written, there were better places to put things or better ways to write things. I agree. I didn't really bring up the Tyrion conversation so far because that's my least favorite part of the chapter. It does feel yeah. a little clunky, a little structurally off. And that is still part of the main criticism I've been making of Jon's arc in A Game of Thrones is that it feels a little stiff and forced at times, especially the dialogue. It yes. doesn't feel like Martin's as fluid and comfortable with this world as he is in King's Landing or the Riverlands or the Vale later on. Castle Black and Jon, he's still a little... He's still figuring things out where he wants to go. He clearly has an idea of the structure and themes, which is what makes this chapter work so well, but the, the nitty-gritty of the dialogue and the conversational flow. He still, as we've said multiple times, he really captures that once we get beyond the wall and John links up with Corrin Halfhand. That's when that stuff starts really getting good. At this point, it's that's not the best part of John's chapters or of the series as a whole. I totally agree. Yep. For me, the part I don't really like, not so much about this chapter, but... Going forward from what it starts is Alistair Thorne. He's not one of my favorite characters in the series. He gets some really cutting, effective dialogue, as we've outlined. He uh, works wonderfully as the, the gruff, mean drill sergeant. <laughs> he plays that role well. He fulfills the archetype well, but there's really no depth to him. His motives are never really explored or expanded upon. And there's not much payoff to the battle lines that are drawn so ominously at this chapter's end when he, he's... The acid tones of an enemy as he's snapping at John. That's how the chapter ends. So you're, you're yeah. led to believe, like, okay, this is the fight. He's John's nemesis. This is going to be the recurring thing, but not really. He keeps going up against John, but uh, for the rest of the series to date, Sir Alistair keeps getting sent off somewhere or rendered irrelevant by yes. events of the narrative in a way that prevents his antagonism with John from reaching any kind of satisfying conclusion. As we go from here forward in the story, he targets Sam for bullying in John's next chapter, but John's defiance there is ultimately more about his dynamic with the other boys, following up on his outreach to Gren in this chapter about like getting them to, together to defend Sam, about dealing with the one guy who refuses. It's it's not really about him versus Alice or Thorne. That's not really the, the focus of the dynamic. It's about John with Sam and with the other boys becoming a leader. George had a great opportunity to introduce something here in that we find out in the next Tyrion chapter that Sir Alistair Thorne 
was a soldier in service to Aerys Targaryen, and it would make sense for Sir Alistair to immediately dislike someone like Jon Snow because he is the bastard son of Ned Stark, one of the people that was a part of the victorious rebels who sent John, or rather, who sent Sir Alistair to the wall, and he's pissed off and angry at the Starks because they're the enemy, and it would make sense why he's so upset and so antagonistic towards John. So I, I, I really think that you're, you're driving at a really great point in that Sir Alistair is great in terms of his dialogue, and he's he has these great cutting jibes that he kind of gets in on John, and he gives him the name Lord Snow, and that's great, and that's terrific, but it's surface level stuff. It's just like I'm he's a bad dude without a lot of the foundation that could have made him a really great villain or a great minor villain, I guess, in the story. Um but but yeah, I I, I again I totally agree with with your take on Sir Alistair. Yeah, it's not interesting in a way that I think the show actually improved. There's a, a little scene I really like in the show uh, I forget the is the Watchers on the Wall, is that the name of the Battle at the Wall episode in season yep. four? Season four and, episode uh, nine, yep. Alistair is in command, and he tells John as the wildlings approaching, and we should have blocked up the tunnel, as you suggested. And, like, gives him a little speech about leadership, and there's, like, there's a little bit of humanity to him. And, like, he's shown caring about his brothers, leading them into battle, giving... Like, it doesn't... You don't get the sense he cares about the Night's Watch in the books at all. No. Like, this just seems like he's angry at everything that's just doing this, because it, it lets him lash out at people. And, uh, and he's also in the show, of course, plot functional, in that he leads the assassination attempt on John and is front and center for that process. Which yes. surprisingly doesn't happen in the book. So yeah, from from this first book, after this first book, um, well, it's late in this first book, John goes for Sir Alistair's throat about Ned when uh, Sir Alistair says, "Not just a bastard, but a traitor's bastard." But that is immediately shunned to the side because then the white attack happens, and yes, Elsie Mormont just pretty much forgives John for going after Alistair and sends Alistair to King's Landing to to bring news of the whites, and he's stymied by Tyrion there, so he doesn't really accomplish anything. He shows up. There's this huge gap where, like, he doesn't show up in the Storm of Swords until way late in the book. And then when he, he shows up again, he's trying to take control via Jaina Slint, but then he's interrupted by Stannis and then foiled by Jon's election. <laughs> and then he's not Jon's nemesis as Lord Commander, which I think a lot of us expected. Instead, as you said earlier in the episode, Jon Snow sends Alistair off ranging, and we don't know what's happened to him since. And Jon's right. uh, antagonist becomes Bowen Marsh, which I do like as a decision. I think Bowen Marsh is a more appropriate antagonist for Jon as Lord Commander because he's much more of an institutional villain than like a personal mustache twirling kind of villain. He's like <laughs> representing the, the conservative instincts of the Watch, and that's a much more appropriate villain, I think, for Jon as a leader than yeah. someone who's, who just hates him. So I think that works, but it also means that I'm left wondering what the point of Alistair Thorne was and why Martin bothered outlining him at the end of this chapter as John's nemesis when that doesn't really seem to be the case and he's more of a chump than anything else. Yeah, I think you make a good point about how he's constantly stymied by various characters and his plots don't go anywhere. And even, you know, when you get that fetch me a block scene from uh, Dance with Dragons, uh, John 2, Alistair is there and John thinks that he's going to go for a sword or something, but he kind of shrinks away. So it's always, it's, you're almost like, you're almost constantly blue balled from this emerging conflict that never materializes into something. And that does, it is a payoff that doesn't pay off. In fact, it's not a payoff at all, really. And I think that's a great point about the show that they, they do give Alistair a bit more depth and a bit more complexity because he is there on the wall. He is defending the 
the wall from the wildling attacks. And, you know, as much as I'll criticize the direction of the show to make John's assassination all about bringing the wildlings south of the wall, I think it works well in the context of one character, and that character is Sir Alistair Thorne, who's been fighting against the wildlings for his entire career. Has he, I think he was wounded in the Battle of the Wall, in the show version of the Battle of the Wall, if I remember correctly. Yes, indeed. Yes, so indeed. He, he has a reason why he would want to stab John for bringing his hated enemies south of the wall after all of these terrible things have happened. Having him kind of amalgamating some of Bowen Marsh's role, I think, was a good direction on the show and that it gives us an established character that the audience kind of sympathizes with at the end of, the, of, of season four. And to have him be the villain of season five and season six for John, it, it, it works really well. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that the it's kind of a misstep on Martin's part that Sir Alistair is, is there. I, I think we were talking before we came on air about how Sir Alistair reminded me of Septim Ordain in that he's Septim Ordain has the role for Sansa and Arya of being this antagonist to them and, you know, mind your manners and, you know, stitch your cross stitch evenly, Arya, that sort of mentality. But there's nothing really in Septim Ordain that makes us go, oh, what? she's this way because she was mistreated um, by her mother's superior back in the day. Or she has a conservative mentality in terms of the role of women in the story because her mother was, you know, whatever. But it it doesn't work necessarily as well. Uh, it, it does have some payoffs, I guess, when you find out that when she's killed at the end of Game of Thrones. And, you know, I, I guess I, I see him similar, those two antagonists, those two minor two minor antagonists of, of Alistair and, and, and Mordane, and it, it just doesn't work necessarily as well as it could have. Yeah, and even when Septa Mordane dies, it's not like, I don't know, I, I've never really liked that, because it's not like Sansa looked up to her, or like thought, you know, was trying to be like her, or thought of her as... It doesn't really... It's just like Santa goes, Oh, why did you kill her? And Joffrey <laughs> just says, Cuz. And then you move on. <laughs> right. And, like, even something slightly better that the show did, at least she had a moment where, like, she told Sansa to run and hide and then went and faced her death. It was that little moment uh, when when the Tower of the Hand is being attacked in season one. So, yeah, little moments like that are what you need for these kind of lesser antagonistic characters. And I think structurally, yeah, I don't think Alice Reform works especially well. But in terms of more successful... Uh, structural gambits, getting into the kind of foreshadowing and groundwork late in this episode. There's a fair amount of that, uh, especially in regards to the most recent brand chapter we did with LML. Yes. So we get from that chapter from brand three, we have brand seeing he saw the wall shining like blue crystal and his bastard brother, John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. In the chapter itself, we get in a few years, he would forget what it felt like to be warm. So Martin is intentionally paralleling these two passages and showing that Bran's visions are true um, to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, again, like we said in that episode with LML, we do think that part of Bran, that part of that Bran 3 chapter is foreshadowing John's coming death and potential being housed in the ice cells of, of the wall. But here we get a smaller version of it where John is constantly cold and is constantly in the throes of cold, hard people at the wall and forgetting what it felt like to be warm because even when he's fighting, he has, you know, sweat trickling icily down his back and those types of mentality of it being super cold and not especially pleasant there. Definitely not warm for sure. 
Yes, that's uh, that's very true. Um, the the wall again is consistently associated with cold, and you know, John puts the corpses waiting for them to wake up in the ice cells later. So there's there's strong connections there for sure. Yeah, and we also have some minor or major, depending on your perspective, hinting that Benjamin knows RLJ. It's pretty subtle. When Ben is talking with John, he says, "Quote: If you thought your Stark blood would win you easy favors, you were wrong." We put aside our old families when we swear our vows. Your father will always have a place in my heart, but these are my brothers now. It really calls back to Catelyn Stark's memory of Ned telling her that John is, quote, my blood, and that is all you need to know. Um, when Benjamin says that your Stark blood would win you easy favors and you were wrong, it seems to me intentional Martin's part that he is attempting to call the reader, the careful reader to the same wording of the Stark blood being describing John uh, by being used by both Benjamin and Ned to s- indicate that John might not be the son of Ned Stark. Um, what's interesting, too, is I'm curious if Benjamin might be slyly referencing Rhaegar Targaryen here. Given the theory that Benjamin may have played a role in R plus L equals J, either helping Lyanna escape or knowing about her escape and not doing anything about it, could be that Benjamin maybe thinks fondly of the Targaryen crown prince. You know, he did see Rhaegar at the tourney of Harrenhal and saw how gallant and awesome he seemed to be. Maybe he has a fond place for Rhaegar, or maybe he has a fond place for Rhaegar because of what, um, because of the memory of Lyanna, and that same sort of mentality flows through Ned Stark as well. So when he says, your father will always have a place in my heart, he might not mean Ned. He... Well, he might mean Ned, but he might also mean Rhaegar Targaryen. I guess maybe that's a payoff we'll see someday in the future. True. I think it's interesting to consider that part of Ned's motivation for wanting Jon to go to the Night's Watch or being amenable to the idea was that so that he could never claim or be pushed into claiming uh, the Iron Throne or any yes. part of his Targaryen heritage. So, and we know that Ned and Ben had a conversation about Jon going to the Wall. It was a private conversation. We didn't hear anything about it. Hmm. Uh, that that discussion, as you said, was from Catelyn's POV. So maybe when when Ben says we put aside our old families when we swear our vows, he's kind of emph- subtly emphasizing that point that John yes. is giving up not only his Stark blood but also his Targaryen blood and anything that goes with it when he comes to the Wall. So I think he might have been in on that plan absolutely, and I totally agree. I, I lean towards Benjamin knowing about R plus L equals J and having had some part in arranging it, and that's why he he took the black out of some kind of sense of guilt or penance for how that all worked out. Agreed. Uh, Another little bit of not exactly symbolic foreshadowing, but just direct character groundwork. We have that little moment you mentioned in the synopsis where Alistair is withholding information about the letter that John is being called to discuss, or the news that John is being called to discuss. And Tyrion says, you know, if you you continue doing this to John, I'm going to speak to my my people at court. I'll use my influence to make sure you never get another boy to train. And this sets up an antagonism between Tyrion and Alistair Thorne that pays off in a really important way when you get to a clash of kings. When Tyrion is, is presiding over court, Alistair shows up with that rotted white's hand. Tyrion first shunts him off to wait and then belittles him in court. And that, of course, is very important because that means that uh, the Iron Throne, the power in the Iron Throne never takes seriously the threat beyond the wall. Stannis ends up taking that seriously, but of course he comes north with a very diminished force. Uh, not nearly as impactful as it would have been had the Lannisters taken this seriously in A Clash of Kings and the direct yep. power on the Iron Throne. So what seems, it's another nice little bit of writing with what seems like just a, 
happenstance back and forth between these two characters, not the focus of the drama, ends up having a huge influence on the narrative later on when uh, when Tyrion kind of indulges in his dislike for Alistair Thorne to the cost of the realm. Yeah, that's it's a moment where I think in A Clash of Kings that Martin wants us to be like, maybe Tyrion isn't that great of a guy, you know, because he is using... Sir Alistair Thorne's, because um, he, he brings the hand. I think that's the thing, right? He brings the hand yes. with him to King's Landing. It's like, ah, oh, this hand was moving around. But because he waited so long to see Sir Alistair Thorne, the hand is now dead and it's not moving around anymore. So he becomes a moment of mockery for Tyrion. And Tyrion knows the threat, as we're going to find out in the next Tyrion chapter, to the wall and knows that the wall desperately needs men, support, and supplies in order to maintain its defense of the realm, not only against Manstrader's wildlings, but also against the threat of the Others, and the threat of the Others is coming and has been seen by the men of the Night's Watch, as we see in the end of A Game of Thrones, towards the end of A Game of Thrones, with the Whites rising from, or the dead men rising and attempting to kill Lord Commander Mormont. So, yeah, it's 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 an interesting payoff, Um I really like the payoff a lot, although it, again, speaks in my mind to Tyrion being a much grayer character at that juncture in the story and perhaps even venturing into a little bit of villainy as well. Certainly true. He sends Alistair home with his pick of the dungeons. He keeps the, the supplies going, but he doesn't see the larger threat that Alistair Thorne is pointing to. Or he does at some level, but can't bring himself to recognize it. Speaking of foreshadowing of the events beyond the wall... And the Wildlings and the others, we do see some examples of that as well. Uh, there's the quote, He wanted to ride with Benjen Stark on his rangings deep into the mysteries of the haunted forest, wanted to fight Mance Raider's Wildlings and war the realm against the others, which is an interesting way of phrasing that. It is. You, so it's, it's, it's curious to me that Martin seems to be setting up John encountering Mance Raider and the Wildlings this early on. You know, we have in Catelyn's first chapter, Ned talking about how he might need to call the banners and march north to confront Mance Raider. Here we get Mance Raider dropped, his name dropped twice in the chapter itself. Um, but it's interesting that John doesn't, while John at first doesn't fight Mance Raider, he joins them. Um, of, of course, he's, he's a spy in the ranks, uh, spying on behalf of the Night's Watch and attempt to determine the purpose of Mance Raider's march south and why they've been digging up in the Frost Fangs. But then he eventually does fight Mance Raider's wildlings at the Battle of the Wall, so we have a little bit of foreshadowing for that. Although, of course, it's not deep in the mysteries of the Haunted Forest, it's actually at the Wall itself. And then you have this curious phrasing of ward the realm against the others. I've gone back and forth about what this means and whether it has any implications for the end game. I honestly don't know. I mean, I think the wall itself is the ward that is used to keep the others north of the wall. But I don't know what that might mean for the future of the story. Does that mean that John or Bran or someone rebuilds the wall and the others are still around at the end of the story? It, it's something to consider, I guess. Yeah, it's an interesting choice of phrase. Who knows what uh, Martin has in mind for, for John's specific role against the others. I think I tend to think it's going to be a mixture of political and magical for John. Again, yeah, that the theme of the middle way and the way he's both, uh, you know, fulfillment of Azor Ahai's prophecy, the Azor Ahai prophecy, and that he's coming back from the dead, but still has a political role to play in the North with the Wildlings and the Northmen. So yeah, I mean, John's, and that's a kind of interesting open question: is what exactly 
the role John will play in the magical plot be. We're getting a sense of the shape Bran is going to play from his time with Blood Raven and the Children in the Cave. Sure. We have a sense of the role Danny's going to play regarding her dragons and the general association with fire magic. We even have a role, a sense of the role Stannis, Melisand- Stannis and Melisandre will play, as we were discussing a little bit earlier in the episode regarding uh, the question we got. But John's role in that regard is still very unclear if it's going to be connected to ghosts, if it's going to be connected to dragon riding, if it's going to be connected to direct magic use in some way by himself. We don't really know. Yeah. Uh, that is an implication, though, I think, in that quote that, that he will be involved in that some way and that it'll, it'll be connected to the wall and to the Night's Watch and to the magic running through them. So we're, we're going to see how that pays off. Definitely. And it's an uh, open question, not a one that I have a whole lot of very concrete thoughts on. Um, but on the same line about the others there is a interesting sly allusion to the others in this chapter that martin i think is integrating here he's um john is is thinking about that he's going through he's walking through with with Tyrion, and he says quote or he thinks quote castle black had no godswood only a small sept and a drunken septon but john could not find it in him to pray to any gods old or new if they were real he thought they were as cruel and as implacable as winter well, that's kind of some interesting phrasing on John's part right there, especially when you think about it in uh, contrast or in comparison to things that Gilly and Craster say to John and Sam in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords. You have Gilly in telling John in A Clash of Kings, where John is asking, what gods? John was remembering that they'd seen no boys in Craster's keep, nor men either, save Craster himself. The cold gods, she said, the ones in the night, the white shadows. And then later, just before the Night's Watch mutiny, you have Craster saying, quote, a godly man got no cause to fear such. I said as much to that Mance Raider once when he was came sniffing around. He never listened no more than you crows with your swords and your bloody fires. That won't help you none when the white coal comes. Only the gods will help you then. You best get yourself right with the gods. And that comes from a storm of swords. You like you like that Craster as a southern. I like that Craster lives in West Virginia. That's 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 a that's a fun image uh, that 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 fits with I think what Martin is doing politically with Craster. So I, uh, I do like that accent, good sir. Yeah, nicely we're, we're, done. We're gonna go full deliverance when we get to Craster. Come come <laughs> a clash of kings for sure. But um, but yeah, so it seems that Craster and Gilly are associating the others with. The cold gods, the ones of the night, the white shadows, similar to John's phrasing that they were cruel and as implacable as winter. It kind of seems tied together. Not sure how much Martin had intended that as much at this juncture in the story. But it's an interesting connection, and I think one that Martin explored really adeptly in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords, and I imagine we'll be exploring more as the others come into greater focus in The Winds of Winter. Oh, I agree. I think Craster and the deal he made with the others is very interesting, and we'll probably... I think that'll probably come up, especially when we get into the history of The Long Night, something we were talking about earlier with regards to the show. I imagine deals like Craster's have been made before, and we're gonna, yes. I think we're probably going to get into how that works. Uh, something that struck me just while you were reading those quotes is another comparison between John and Stannis, when he says, But John yes. cannot find it in him to pray to any gods, old or new. If they were real, they were as cruel and implacable as winter. It's pretty much exactly what Stannis is, says in Davos's first chapter, and he says that, you know, he... He gave up worship when they, uh, his his parents sunk with their ship. If there were any gods, uh, you know they 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 were too cruel to give up his family, and he would they would deny them worship on that basis. And that all he ever saw of good came from from men. So that's again another perfect comparison between the two. That they have this kind of 
uh, early atheism in their youth connected to the cruelty of the world and the seeming cruelty and, and ruthlessness of the gods. So yet yet more grist for that particular mill. Yeah, I mean, you, you, it's not for nothing that Melisandre explicitly connects yes. John and Stannis in her singular Dance with Dragons chapters, saying they're more alike than they would both care to admit. You know, they're which both I love. Second, yeah, yeah, they're both second sons. They're both essentially they're dealing with their atheism early on. Um, their anger at it's more of like an almost like an anti-theism for for both of them as opposed to like a straight yeah kind of emotional their atheism. Anger. They're angry at the gods, that's true. And I love that Melisandre passage, especially, yeah, it's just more alike than either of them would care to admit. That fits John and Stannis perfectly, that they're not they're not willing to admit how alike they are. Yes. There's that great line from Melisandre, and she says Stannis is growing fond of John, and John replies, I can tell, he only threatened to behead me twice. <laughs> um, which is just a perfectly representative line of Stannis. And yeah, of course, Melisandre herself, that's another comparison point between John and Stannis, is their taste for redheads, Egret versus Melisandre. There you go. Uh, so, yeah, we'll get into that, obviously, much more as we go, and as Stannis becomes more prominent in the narrative, but that struck me as you were reading it, sir. Absolutely. So that uh, that about sums up the foreshadowing and groundwork in this chapter, moving on to the more kind of uh, theoretical uh, discussion of the episode. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Is Sorry. this the one where Benjen is cold hands? Is that what we're about to talk about? Yes, Jeff. Pat's head quietly. We're about to talk about the one where Benjen is cold. Yes. This is All right. My favorite theory. I love this. The one theory where Martin just directly said no, <laughs> not to us, but to Circled his editor in, in, in red Circled ink. It. Circle. No. Uh, frustrating with that theory. Clearly. Yes. Benjen, Benjen is not cold hands. I understood. I understand the appeal of that theory, uh, but it's, it's not the case. Uh, so, but that leads us into our, our discussion which is uh, where in the world is Benjamin Stark? As you say, where he vanishes after this chapter. Is exactly. Benjamin Stark of Winterfell? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's something that the fandom has debated endlessly over the years since the Game of Thrones. We've gotten little hints, maybe as the series has gone on, but it's basically a gigantic opening question. So I put it to you, Jeff. What happened to Benjamin Stark after this chapter? Um, yeah, it's, it's a great <laughs> question, man. Yeah. As I try and stall for time. Um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, right? Because like, it, you know, you think about some of these theories there, there, for me, there are things that I've thought through pretty concretely, I would say. I have pretty good ideas about where the story is going. I, I think of a character like, Daenerys or Ariane or John to a lesser no, I guess John's not a good example of a character like John Connington there you go John Connington to a lesser to a lesser extent uh, Aegon and some of these other characters I have pretty decent ideas about what Martin, where Martin is going to take these characters no doubt he'll throw some curveballs in there and surprise me and make it make an enjoyable run all, all the same Benjen Stark the fate of Benjen Stark where did he end up and well I think it's interesting that John has a vision of Benjen lying dead in the snow in this chapter itself. That's one of the things that he, it says that he comes up in his mind's eye that he thinks that Benjen is going to be lying dead in the snow. I, I hope that's not the case. I don't think it's the case. And I, I will say this why I don't think it's the case. Because later in A Game of Thrones, we get some of those range, same rangers that Benjen left with come back to the, come back to Castle Black and attempt to murder Lord Commander Mormont. Benjamin Stark isn't among them, so the supposition and assumption is that he somehow made it out of there. He somehow survived that encounter. Or you can have the version that the show has where Benjamin doesn't survive the encounter, but he's 
resurrected by the Three-Eyed Raven. Of course, it's a bit different from the Three-Eyed Crow in the show. And he comes back to help Bran out and saves John at the end of that not great episode of season seven where the the White Hunt is this, as is popularly known as. So I think he's alive, I think, in some level. I think we're going to disagree, though, because I think we've had this discussion previously on, on other outlets where I think you would say that Benjen is off doing things and is helping the watch in some ways. And I, won't, I don't want to spoil your argument, but actually, go ahead. Go ahead and make that argument right now. Sure, we'll get into this more. This will be our theory debate when we get to John Four, Clash of Kings, yes. and uh, the cachet left behind uh, in the Night's Watch cloak at the Fist of the First Men, especially since pretty much nothing happens in that chapter, so we're not going to have much to talk about. <laughs> so we'll spend a fair amount of time on that. Uh, more generally speaking, yeah, I think Benjen was sent after Waymore Royce. Uh, Craster says Benjen didn't come through to Craster's Keep in search of Waymar Royce. I think he's probably lying about that. Agreed. I agree with Stephen Outwell that what might have happened here is Craster set up Benjen to, to be ambushed by the others because Craster's clearly in communication with them. Uh, I think he might have done the same thing to Waymar Royce as, as for all we know. So uh, Benjen, clearly some of his party were ambushed by the others or killed and found later by the others because as you say, two of them came back as whites later on in the book to as- attack Castle Black and specifically assassinate the leadership at Castle Black. Yeah, uh, Benjen, I agree, escaped them. Uh, I I personally think that he 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 grabbed the Horn of Winter ahead of the others in Mance and left it at the Fist because he knew Elsie Mormont would come after him. If that's the case, then he doesn't have a cloak at the moment, so he might be undercover. But yeah, I overall the general arc of what I think happened to Benjen is he was sent after Waymar. He just like. The Great Ranging learned more about the Wildlings and the others and realized that the others were the real threat and is now kind of attempting to deal with them. Why he's not coming back to the Watch is the big open question, if that's the case. Yeah. And the answer there might have something to do with being killed or resurrected, being connected to Cold Hands and Blood Raven and what they're doing. But if that's the case, then too, then the question becomes, why hasn't he revealed himself to Bran yet? So there's, there's, there. it demands an explanation, I will say. If, if yes. Benjen is still running around doing things... It demands an explanation as to why he has not revealed himself, and for all we know, there's no in-universe explanation for that, and Martin is just going to hand wave it. It's certainly possible. But if he's outranging, that, that is going to demand an answer. I think, personally, what I would love to have him get roped back into the narrative is via Stone Snake, the one Granger of Corn Halfhands whose fate yes. wasn't confirmed. I would love if, they, if he encountered Benjen somehow, but we'll see. Uh, what about you, sir? Um, yeah... I, I mean, I, that is an argument against being Benjen free, the fact that he hasn't encountered anyone or talked to anyone. So maybe he's not. Maybe he's a captive. I, I, there's nothing in the um, there's nothing to say that Bloodraven doesn't have multiple people that he's resurrected in some capacity and is, has serving with him. Right. True. It, true. It could be that Benjen Stark is on a different mission, though. He could have cold hands as the character who is shepherding Bran to the cave to the, th- to the cave of the three-eyed crow and have Benjen maybe searching in the lands of always winter to take out the others to do kind of one of those commando raids against their mythical stronghold. And I feel like I'm talking these super high fantasy concepts, which I don't know that Martin is necessarily going for here, but he could be on a separate mission. 
from uh, from from cold hands because again they're both they're not the same character it was a theory that i believed in for a time that benjamin was cold hands i think that was probably one of the first things that i thought of like oh well obviously cold hands is is benjamin as a reading a storm of swords back in like 2012 but not necessarily the case not definitely not the case with martin circling the no on there um but yeah i'm it is something that has to pay off at some level. There has to be some revelation down the road. It. I don't want to say it's a Chekhov's gun necessarily because it doesn't necessarily fit all the criteria for that. But it's definitely a mystery that needs a bit of revelation at some juncture, at some level. And it's also clear to me, too, that very early on in writing a Game of Thrones, that Martin wanted it to be a mystery and wanted it to be an enduring mystery. Because there's been no sign of Benjen after this chapter beyond the whites showing up at Castle Black, being dumped off there at the edge of the Haunted Forest. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. Like I, like I said before, I, I feel like I have definite ideas how some mysteries will be revealed. This is one that I'm not sure the direction that Martin is going to go beyond that it's, there's, going to be, there's going to be a resolution to the mystery. True. I think it's also possible, we haven't brought this up, Benjen might be in Hardhome, or might be tied back into the narrative through Hardhome somehow. That's a loose dingling through the end of a dance with dragons, so maybe that gets involved. I agree that Benjen going on a, like a recon mission in the land of Always Winter to, like, you know, get the mystical dagger or something is, like, super <laughs> high fantasy and maybe not what Martin's doing. It feels like it might be a Martin touch to have that happen, but off stage though. Like, have Benjen yeah. do this crazy-ass mission, but then we only hear about it. And like glimpses or hints, that seems like something Martin might be interested in doing as kind of a, a subverting. Like you have, you know, Benjen do this classically heroic thing, but it's 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 off stage. Uh, that that might tickle Martin's fantasy. So I, I agree. Uh, he'll he'll be hooked back into the narrative, and it's 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 going to be one of those things where we have to measure the plausibility test. It is something, to be honest, I could see Martin botching potentially or not doing as well as some other narrative elements if it feels too forced. And if it feels like he's just being shuffled on screen, like, oh, right, here's Benjen also. So that that is something I'll be interested in. But yeah, I, I lean towards him being on some kind of recon mission, and we will have to have it explained to us why he's he's not contacting any of our main characters in doing so. The other theory that people have brought up is that the others have him and are going to use his blood somehow or have some kind of plan for him, which is certainly possible. Who knows, again, why they haven't done it already, but that leads into a larger question, which is we don't know what timeline the others are on or right. why they're really why they're back now or what their plan is, specifically for getting south of the wall. So Benjen being involved in that is as likely as any other possibility, so that's something, Stark Blood being what it is, that's something that could come up. I can see the appeal of the theory that Benjen will be sacrificed for some sort of other mission. Uh, the one I've I think the theory that's most prominently explored is the one that Benjen will be sacrificed to bring down the wall itself. Right. I think that is a possibility. I sure hope it's not a possibility because, I mean, Benjen, even though he's a minor character, is, again, one of these characters like we talked about with Donald Noy, who you enjoy reading about, that's fleshed out, that is interesting, and not just interesting because of the mystery surrounding his disappearance, but because he knows potentially knows a lot of stuff, potentially knows about RLJ, potentially knows more about um, more about John's heritage and knows more about the idea why John, why Ned ultimately allowed John to join the Night's Watch. So, I don't know, I guess maybe the Winds of Winter will be resolved this. It's, it seems 
it seems <laughs> it's it's one of these things where I well, well, there was a maybe a year ago I, I decided to do this thing where I was calculating and writing down all the unresolved mysteries that are in the Song of Ice and Fire, and it was like close to 200-ish mysteries of varying degrees Ooh, and levels. Boy. Yeah, right? You got everything from whatever happened to Ashardain to what happened to Benjamin Stark to kind of the more minor minor mysteries as well. Like, did Stevron, was Stevron Frey killed by Blackwater and stuff like that? You know, things that are... Sure. Don't have necessarily yeah. a huge narrative payoff, but it's it's a lot of stuff, right? And Benjamin Stark's disappearance is one of the earliest mysteries in the story and still doesn't have a resolution to it. And man, I would love to get that resolution sooner rather than later. Well, The Winds of Winter comes out tomorrow, Jeff, so we'll oh, have your answer great. there. No Very way. Very convenient. No <laughs> way. <laughs> That's awesome. And that, I think, about wraps it up for us on John 3 Game of Thrones, our favorite John chapter so far. Yes, indeed. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And thanks for those of you who support us on Patreon. And we appreciate your ears and we appreciate your support as well. And this now we're coming up to our 20th episode next time. So that's cool. Thanks for listening, guys. Like Jeff said, you can rate and review us on iTunes. Check us out in Podbean and SoundCloud. Uh, follow us on social media. We're at NotACastASOIAF on Twitter. Our email is notacastasoiif at gmail.com. Jeff mentioned the Patreon. If you're not a supporter yet, go check it out at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoiif. And please join us next time as we return to King's Landing for Ned's first day at the office with Eddard Four. That's going to be, be fun. great. It's going to be great, man. I'm already excited about our first small council session for sure. Yes, indeed. So uh, see you next week, guys, and happy trails. Cheers. Thank you to all of our Patreons, our Lord's Commander, our Lord Hayden J, Lord Timothy W, Lord Mark N. And our Kingsguard Patrons, Sir Dean W, Sir Spank Mitator, Sir Philip T, Sir Heidner, Sir Captain Dusty Farts, Sir Peter F, Sir Miramets, and Sir Patrick D. And our Sworn Sword Patrons are Lady Rebecca L, Sir Shamik C, Sir Joseph B, Lady Kelly and Sir Derek L, Sir Nathan C, Sir Connor B, Sir Joseph B, Sir Tom M, Sir Jose Y, Sir Darren S, Sir Marcus T, Sir Andrew B, Lady Bree B, Lady Casey D, Lady B Word, Sir Derek H, Sir Josh, Sir Andrew B, Sir Blue Ringed Octoling, Sir Chris H, Sir Dean B, Sir Andrew M, Lady Yvonne, Lady Melanie L, Sir James W, Sir Wideman, Sir Colin M, Sir Stephen R, Sir Jason P, Lady Amy H, Lady Vanessa C, Sir Junklord, Sir Adam A, Lady Rachel R, Sir Adam L, Sir Clint W, Sir Dan Z, Lady Fanny, Lady Catriona P, Lady Emma S, Sir Chris K, Sir Eli M, Lady June C, Sir Suki, Sir Rob L, Sir Alexane, Sir Travis M, Sir Keith J, Sir Matt L, Lady Joyce S, Lady Emily A, Sir Mongo the Mage, Sir Corey H, Lady Erin, Lady Courtney S, Sir Gibb, Sir Andre, Old Sadie, and Sir Manu. And our poor fellows are Sir Michael G, Lady Adriana B, Sir Patrick Y, Sir Eric L, Lady Karen C, Sir Stephen G, Sir Matthew C, Lady Stephanie E, Sir John N, 
Sir Thomas P, Lady Alaris Sand, Sir Eric H, Sir Herman C, Sir Michael M, Sir Callum S, Sir Nathan A, Sir Robert M, Sir John M, Lady Holly H, Sir, my lady, Laith H, Sir Craig W, Sir Aaron P, Sir, my lady, Chris Kloss, Lady Roxanne C, Sir General Counsel to the Iron Bank, Sir First Name, Last Name, Sir Michael and Adriana G, Sir Michael I, Sir Nicholas E, Sir Calvin, Sir Devin G, Sir Samuel P, Sir Aldrin L, Sir Michael T, Lady Liz F, Sir Tim S, Sir Pat S, Sir Chris, Sir Dunk the Lunk, Sir John H, Sir Sam K, Lady Lauren, Lady Rebecca B, Sir Robert B, Sir Chad C, Laura Brennan the Brewer of Castle Blackroot, Sir Justin W, Sir MF and Moonboy, Sir Thomas C, Sir Grant P, Sir Ian C, Lady Mimi, Sir Eric E, Sir Seth, Sir John R, Sir Tim D, Lady Amy K, Sir, my lady, LMC, Sir Stormtheus, Lady Allison M, Sir Brandon B, Sir Ty W, Sir Ian M, Sir Brian, Sir Aaron A, Sir Simon A, Sir Stephen J, Princess Leah, Alexander W, Sir Jed S, Sir David B, Lady Monica M, Lady Cassidy D, Sir Pascal M, Sir, my lady, FP, Sir Brandon S, Sir Roger the Night Cook, Sir Eric R, Sir Daniel R, Sir Mark M, Sir Chris, Sir, my lady, Mendagas J, Sir Henry M, Sir Arlo B, Sir Michael M, Sir, my lady, Tower of John, Sir Jerry, Sir Jeremy T, Sir Patrick B, Sir Andrew B, Lady Iris F, Sir Ryan G, Sir Chase K, Sir Grayson H, Sir Chris M, Sir Mike S, Sir Louis A, Lady Leslie C, Lady Lee C, Lady Kimberly J, Sir Eric C, Sir Cody L, Sir Ben T, Lady Katie O, Sir, my lady, 1000 eyes in one, Sir Joseph P, Lady Laurel A, Lady Laura L, Sir David G, Sir Ben, Sir TJW, Lady Red Ramira Ravenhorn of Skagos, Sir Connor M, Sir Mubarak M, Sir Matthew W, Sir Tim S, Lady Yvonne S, Sir Joseph G, Sir Christopher V, Sir Edward H, Sir Rene W, Sir Oscar R, Sir Chris D, Sir, my lady, Rasmus B, Sir Kevin C, Sir Rogan W, Lady Jojo D, Lady Sarah L, Sir Will C, Sir Brett A, Sir Andrew M, Sir Ian L, Sir Oliver S, Lady Randy H, Lady Amy D, Lady Jennifer W, Sir Gregor M, Sir John R, Lady Mercy D, Lady Beth B, Lady Siren 9, Lady Laurie, Sir Philip T, Sir Jacob R, Sir Ryan, Sir Nick S, Sir Kyle H, Sir Michael S, Sir Liam M, Sir Javi M, Sir Juhani S, Sir Patrick 84, Sir Nikolai H, Sir Jesse H, Sir Andrew Z, Sir, my lady, A Sully 8018, Sir Alan C, Sir, my lady, Russian machine never breaks, Sir Matija D, Sir Evan, Sir Clay S, Sir Casey M, Sir Steve M, Sir Fifth Horsbane, Sir Stephen Bates, Lady Rita Unbound, Sir Joshua M, Sir Taylor O, Sir Tom F, 
Sir Ewan S, Sir Andrew G, Sir Alex A, Sir Paul R, Sir Michael D, Sir Ray of Light, Sir Mark W, Sir, my lady, Lone Star State, Sir Gary M, Sir Adam M, Sir Peter M, Sir Joseph S, Sir, my lady, MJA, Sir Jordan R, Sir Mike S, Sir Choner, Sir Ocean G, Sir Andrew P, Sir Lightning Lord, Sir Patrick B, Sir Mike, Sir Connor D, Sir, my lady, J-Bite, Lady Charlotte B, Lady Jennifer M, Sir Tim W, Sir Biffy Clegane, Lady Mary R, Sir Nicholas M, Sir, my lady, Dara D, Sir Tom O, Sir Kyle D, Sir Matt M, Lady Catherine, Sir Raymond K, Lady Stephanie H, Sir Line S, Sir Scott R, Sir, my lady, Chiara M, Lady Heather R, Lady Catherine A, Sir Andrew M, Sir, my lady, B-Swing, Lady Rain F, Lady Alexandra M, Sir Johan P, Sir Andrew S, Sir David K, Lady Bonnie, Sir Scott C, Lady Lucy S, Lady Sarah C, Sir Craig M, Sir Michael D, Sir Robert H, Lady Evelyn S, Lady Rachel A, Sir, my lady, Vetter, Lady San Rixian, Sir Derek O, Sir Cyrus M, Lady Dulcie L, Lady Erica P, Lady Ephemerida, Lady Christine H. Our Sparrow patrons, uh, including Lady Reddy Westeros, Sir Lucifer Means Lightbringer, Sir My Lady, Purple Kitty, Sir Colin W, Sir Joel D, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Sir Frank A, Sir Alex H, Lady Maddie S, Lady Steph B, Sir Eraldo B, Sir Mark L, Sir Tom, Lady Tanfacy, Sir Gary G, Lady Francisca H, Sir Timothy U, Sir Lucas K, Lady Lola P, Sir Jason M, Lady uh, Piles, Lady Lare, Sir Kurt S, Lady Sarah L, Lady Sarah M, Sir Ryan N, Lady Sabrina S, Lady Laura H, Sir Thomas W, Lady Kathy S, Sir Anne Milady, History of Westeros, Sir uh, Sam B, uh, Sir Josh B, and Lady Louise M. Thank you all so much. Yes, indeed. Thank you all very much. The Not A Cast podcast is written and recorded by poor credited Brandon Beefish. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the closing song is called Alaska Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you all next time.